in Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the, the whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Art Stone, and with me, as always, is your co-host, Andy Hart! I'm so happy to be here! Two years, Two years, Andy. Two years. Two long fucking years. Hard, arduous, bullshit years. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We're basically podcast veterans at this point. We are basically grizzled, disgusting podcasters. Yeah, we're missing eyes. We're missing eyebrows. We are scarred, bloody. My arm fell off. Bunk Funkers, um, this is a two ye- two years. Can you believe it, Bunk Funkers? Two years. Two years. Two years. Um, we have so many people to thank, but obviously, first on that list is ourselves. As are us, we are the progenitors <laughs> of uh, this. You know, this wouldn't exist without us. <laughs> Truly, it wouldn't. And um, who who else was Mister Bunker going to kidnap? Uh, nobody. Okay. Right. People Nobody who, dumb enough to fall into his traps. Yeah, yeah. People who actually can do uh, good research. People who are actually funny. Like, no, he's not going to contact those people. Those people can't be caught. Those people have lives. They're too busy. They're too uh, put together. Yeah. They're too resourceful. Bunk Bunkers, though, two years. I mean, it's been what an incredible journey. I mean, truly, the never-ending incredible journey Incredible story. We're flying on Falcor, and uh, in some ways, I like to think that we're flying on all of you. And we are sorry, we're not going to take you to the chiropractor to get your spine fixed. No. But we do think about a lot flying on all of you. Yeah, we fly on top of all of you. We, You are the Like a wind. magic carpet of humanity. You are the wind beneath our wings. Um, you Did you ever up. know that you're our hero? You raises up so we can post more episodes. You, you raise way. us up Our so wings. that we can uh, do more stupid lore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, We get raised by you bunk funkers. We thank you all for listening. We thank you all for everything that you do, supporting the show, listening in every week, writing in if you do, if you don't, that's okay. Supporting on the Patreon, of course. 
Instagramming us. Instagramming, Twittering us. DMing. DMing us. Writing in on the email. It means... DPing us. It's been a really fun, wild ride. It really has. Two years. Yeah, it's been like a roller coaster that uh, does a loop and... This roller coaster is breaking down constantly. It's been condemned. Uh, You're not supposed to even use it, but the carnival tries to keep it hush-hush. The guy operating the fucking thing is... He's checked out. A kid died on it 15 years ago, (laughs) and... All they did was kind of clean the seat. You're right. Uh, but they didn't make any modifications no. to the actual coaster itself. It's rickety and it's old, but you know what? You all keep riding it for some goddamn reason, and we f- salute the shit out of you. We do. We do. Anybody that makes a bad choice as often as you do has to be pretty fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> so hats off to you, bunk funkers, and uh, badass shades off to you as well because we know you're all badasses wearing shades yeah i mean just call this csi (laughs) miami (laughs) uh thank you bunk funkers for two long years and we've got a really fun big old conspiracy topic for our two-year don't we oh we got a fat old doink of a conspiracy (laughs) coming at you right now we're smoking this fat doink out in the amish baby this big fat doink gets rolled with so much fucking conspiracy you won't believe it bunk funkers Today, we're, and I I need to mention before, I would be remiss if I did not mention, uh, this, today's topic comes to us from one of our beloved bunkfunkers, one of our beloved patrons of the show, Gretchy. Thank you, Gretchy. Gretchy, as we always say it. For some reason, we say it Scottish. Gretchy. Gretchy. Uh, Gretchy submitted today's topic, which is the uh, befuddling death. Befuddling. Of Danny Casolaro. The octopus. The octopus. We're talking today about uh, mysterious quote-unquote suicides. Ooh. We're talking about uh, global cabals. Ooh. We're talking about political scandals in the <laughs> 1980s. We're talking about octopuses. We're talking about- We are, actually. All of them today. All of the above. Incredible. It's a real, uh, this is a big one. A lot of people, I think, know this story. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Two years. You're going to learn a lot about 1980s conspiracies and cover-ups. I'm going to tell you that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might learn a little bit about yourself along the way. And a lot about uh, uh, IP law, I think, right? And yeah. uh, court proceedings. <laughs> yeah, you're going <laughs> to. Involving um, software from the 1990s. Yeah, there's some dry uh, legal aspects of this story, but... Uh, I think that you'll agree that it's relevant to understanding it the is. whole scope of everything. We promise. We promise. There's going to be a lot of points today that it's going to seem like nothing is going to come together. And we promise you that in the end, it kind of will in a way. Did it? If you think about it enough. We promise. We promise. You'll get it once you listen. Uh, and uh, you can listen, of course. As always, you can look in the show notes, look in the episode description. There will be a timestamp where you can skip ahead so when the research of this topic actually begins, of course, it's always uninterrupted. Funk that's, that's the Indian art guarantee. guarantee. No ads, no nothing, no breaks. Research, no full breaks. stop. You're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to pause it. You're that's not allowed right. to turn it off. No, you're not. And uh, you, you, of course, can. But first, uh, I mean, Andy and I, we need to talk to you. This is a two-year's episode. We're dropping a big old bombshell dookie on you. We're going to go crazy on you. Oh, man. Let me go crazy. We're dropping our drawers and dumping a load of the truth right on your doorsteps here, bunk funkers. Yeah. Um, 
obviously, as you all know, we have been embroiled in a blazing hot criminal civil lawsuit involving Mr. Bunker. We've taken Bunker to court and uh, we've been in court with him for three or four months now. Yeah. I can't remember. It feels like like forever. It feels like ages, but. Probably, I think Guinness said longest court case of all time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what Guinness said. Uh, of course, we're, I of don't course know. talking about Alec Guinness. Uh, <laughs> we contacted his spirit through a Ouija board, and he confirmed this is the longest court case in history. Yep, he did. He did. And, uh, you know, um, we've been showing up at the Guinness plant in Dublin, Ireland, mm-hmm. to try and get some kind of paper record, but uh, for some reason, they keep kicking us out. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I should put pants on, but whatever. Whatever. Uh, I'm not going to wear pants when I'm in Ireland. But Boat Funkers, today... You hear that, Ireland? I'm not going to wear pants when I'm there. You know why? Because it's such a beautiful fucking place. I want to feel free. Shout out to Ireland. Shout out to Ireland. You (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. We love it. We'd love to see what you're doing, Ireland. Keep it up. Shout out to Ireland. Northern Ireland, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) You hear that, Belfast? Um, nah, we love both Ireland. We fucking love both Irelands. You're Protestant, you're Catholic. I yeah. don't care. It's all gravy, baby. Hey, don't let them fucking get you down, Ireland, okay? Keep doing what you're doing. It's all baby gravy. Hey, um, so to all our Irish, uh, supporters, welcome. Uh, we have, we're going to be saying an Irish goodbye. Yeah. To the court. To the court. We, bunk fuckers. Bunkfunkers. If you're not sitting down, sit down. And if you're already sitting down, stand up and sit down. Because we won. We fucking we won. We beat Mr. Bunker. We fucking knocked it out of the park. Andy and I are sitting here. They call us They call us Andy and Art poo holes because we're fucking rocketing baseballs into the stratosphere. Poo holes? Poo holes. <laughs> Andy and Art poo holes. That's what... That's what they're going to call us from now on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they goddamn better. We're fucking fired up. Both We're both sitting here. We have, uh, I mean, we've just been partying nonstop since the verdict was dropped. Yeah. Um, since the sentence was dropped, we have we have powdered sugar all over our noses. We've been gorging ourselves on Entenmann's powdered sugar donuts. Yeah. And, um, pretending and it's cocaine. Donuts. We are pretending that the powdered sugar is cocaine because obviously, <laughs> I mean, we're too scared to actually go out and buy real cocoa. Art only does the powdered sugar, but I chop up the donuts and sniff them through my nose, too. You sniff them. Snort them. <laughs> you sniff them. Sniff them. Snort them. Is that what you think they're doing in the movies, Andy? Is they're sniffing? just smelling. <laughs> just get a smell of it. Bunkbunkers, we're fired up. We're charged up. We're Look, fucking, I got so much sugar in my body, I don't know what I'm doing. We're fucking winners. We don't know what to do. We've never won anything before. This is the only time we've ever been deemed competent by any <laughs> official body of any sort. <laughs> we've been losers our whole lives. We're finally winners. It feels goddamn good God, being the king of the mountain. fucking such a relief. It was such a fuck you to everybody who said you guys are never going to amount to anything, who said you guys are a bunch of losers. Look, we're fucking now. We are, we are. You need to be in a car before you can order through the drive-through. The people who said that, fuck you, fuck you. Do you know how close a horse pulling a wagon is to a car? <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. Who else are we saying fuck you to? We're saying fuck. We're getting our fuck we're yous our out, fuck baby, because we're winners, baby. Woo! 
You know what? Um, fuck you to the doctor that delivered me and spanked my butt. Fuck you. Don't touch my ass. Fuck you to my regular doctor that spanks my ass every time I go for a checkup. Yeah, fuck but you. But not fuck you to Dr. Clint Eggerston. No. You can spank me whenever. Yes. Dr. Clint Eggerston can do whatever he wants to our heinies. And guess what? We're scheduling appointments. Hell yeah. We need somebody to look at these winning boners that we got. Because <laughs> my erections lasted for way more than four hours and I feel lightheaded and my legs don't work well anymore. <laughs> We're saying our fuck yous to so many different people. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's fucking great. Yeah. Um, we're just absolute winners. Um uh we won. So bunk funkers, basically what happened is, you know, this court has been full of hard evidence. We haven't really talked about it. Cause it's so friggin' boring, dude. We know you we know you bunk funkers don't like yeah. the procedural aspect. No, no, no. I mean, but like, you know, we did, we were presenting arguments that Mr. Bunker has caused uh, damage to us, both mentally, physically, financially, financially. Um, so we've been sexually, sexually, sexual damage, artistically, artistic damage. Um, and we've, we're basically, we've been asking for a very long laundry list of different things. Number one, of course, is actual laundry that we need done. Right. Uh, we want Mr. Bunker to do our dirty laundry. We want to watch him wash the skid marks off of our tidy whities We don't want him to know that we're there, but we want to watch him. Right. I added that part. That's true. You did. You like the voyeurism of it. Yeah. Of doing laundry. Um, in fact, many different times, Andy's been kicked out of a lot of laundromats in his life because he'll hide in laundry machines and uh, just sit there on the spin cycle while watching people do their laundry. I like to call myself the washer troll. Yeah, making people solve riddles before you give them their detergent. <laughs> uh, we want financial compensation. We want financial compensation. We Each asked- one of us wanted $69 million. Mm-hmm. That's right. Delivered in Sacagawea coins and uh, USA state quarters. We want to complete that map because mm-hmm. I've never completed it. Still waiting yeah. for my, I don't think I have a, uh, I don't know, I'm missing a, maybe an Idaho coin or something. I don't know what coins I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why earlier that's why earlier today 200 trillion pounds of coins were delivered right here to the bunker. That's right. Um we, we've asked for custody of Peon Musk, mm-hmm. shared custody of course. Shared custody between me and Art. We're daddies. We're daddies now. <laughs> Say hello to daddy. <laughs> Don't wake daddy. Don't fucking wake us. Yeah, or we If fucking... Peon Musk wakes us up, we're going to fucking beat the Beat the shit I I I sleep with a pair of nunchucks under my pillow. Fucking beat the shit out of PMOs. Get him. Fucking teach him the right way. I'll bend him over my knee and spank that little hind end. I Tell don't him, care how wake, big he is. You make up daddy, daddy one and daddy two from a nap. You better go get a switch. Boy. And yes, bunk funkers, Art and I sleep in the same bed. We sleep in the same bed now. Um, we asked for control over the entire bunker. So this is our bunker now. This is ours. Yeah, our fucking bunker. Wish yeah. I knew where it was. Still don't know. Still don't know. So we can't, can't be arsed. Can't, can't leave that often, but no, we might not find our way back. That's true. Um, and yeah, we delivered some closing arguments that basically just um, we just basically listed all the horrible things that Mister Bunker has done to us. Um, you know, we stood up in front of the jury. Um, Andy and I, what we did, smart tactic, very smart tactic that we did. Um. Andy loves onions, and so he just brought a bunch. He can sniff. He can find an onion. He's like a truffle pig. 
You can find an onion anywhere. Um, it's unbelievable Andy's yeah. ability to find onions. I'm like a truffle pig, but an onion hog. You're an onion hog. And so you found some big old honking Vidalias, and we just sniffed those motherfuckers, put them all over our faces. Yeah. And we were crying tears. Tears of... Oh, just, we swayed that hung jury. We uh, made it you could tell. Uh, in closing. It was like Mr. Bunker's been so bad to us. Shot us out of cannons. Did all these horrible things to us. There wasn't a dry anything in the house when we were done. That's true. Because we had flash dance buckets all over the place that we pre-installed. Um, we poured water all over the hung jury. God, they looked good. God, they looked good wet. We made sure they all wore white t-shirts mm-hmm. before showing up. Yep. We, we asked them to wear specific clothing every day. And they never disappoint. Um, and we just, I mean, we really swayed the court um, mm-hmm. with our, you know, we had a we had a steel drum band come in and it got everybody <laughs> grooving to the music, uh, the sounds of the islands. It was beautiful. There was a strange guy filming, handing out free hats if people would lift their shirts up. Don't know what his deal was. No, but, but uh, I got a lot of hats. We we got so many hats. I lifted my shirt. I lift my shirt for almost anything. Pla- <laughs> anything plastic. You don't even have to ask. I'll just do it. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's just it feels good. It feels, we won. Feels tremendous. So the the hung jury was in deliberation for I don't know, Andy. It couldn't have been very long. No, no. I would say they were probably they were probably only deliberating for like sixty nine minutes. Um, the foreskin man delivered his verdict. Yep. He's of course the foreman, but we call him the foreskin man. Yeah. Cause he was in a fire. Foreskin man. He was in a fire. And so they used old foreskins from circumcisions to reconstruct his facial skin. Yeah. He's, but he looks great. He looks great. You can't tell. You can't tell at all. But he told us that in confidence. And so we used it to mock him. Yeah. Don't tell anybody else. Bunk bunkers. Yeah. Don't tell anybody else that he has foreskins all over his face. Right. I mean, we did call him foreskin man. Yeah. To his face all the time. Foreskin man. Um, he issued a verdict. He issued the verdict from the jury. Unanimous decision. Unanimous decision. Mr. Bunker was guilty. Guilty as charged. On all counts. Guilty as charged. And a pretty, pretty wild scene at the courthouse as the verdict was read. That's true. Judge Dredd Judy uh, read the verdict and... Issued a sentence. As soon as she said guilty, Mr. Bunker... Uh, Leaped, who at this point is uh, dressed up like uh, the musician Thundercat. Yeah, <laughs> which I know so much about, and definitely didn't just try and pull that reference out from nowhere. He's dressed like Thundercat. Uh, his uh, his parrots are all dressed like Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> uh, and as soon as the verdict was read that he was guilty, he vaulted. Off of the table, leapt out of a window, not an open window, <laughs> just glass shattering. Glass shattered everywhere. I thought Stone Cold Steve Austin showed up. Dropped down from the courthouse onto a waiting motorcycle and just peeled out of the away from the courthouse. It was crazy. So now he's officially a fugitive from the law because he is a fugitive. Judge Dredd Judy handed down the sentence and he's guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. He owes us all that money. He owes us all that. um, You know, obviously we took over the bunker and Peon Musk and stuff, but also we wanted to send him to prison for life. That was one of our demands. Um, And we wanted to make sure that his, you know, that he has the worst prison experience ever. Solitary confinement. 
We did say give him a window, but we covered the window in those um those decals of Calvin pissing on stuff. Yeah. You know that you see on like the uh, the backs of trucks that are right. badasses. Yeah. So you can't actually see out the window. The only thing you can see is just multiple images layered of, of Calvin pissing. Yeah. Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, but we had a we had an artist modify it so that so that so that uh Calvin is also shitting. So you can see the turd coming out of his butthole. Because you know he's always got his back turned. Yeah, he's showing off his little tush. But now there's a turd coming out of it. Which I don't know if that's physically possible to piss and shit at the same time. It is. It is? Yeah. You've done it? Doing it right now. (laughs) I tell you, it feels great to be a winner. And to piss and shit at the same time. It feels so goddamn good. We've got bacon stuff, Pizza Hut crust, Blake Sheldon. We called him up. He he said he'll uh he said, How did you get this number? But I think what that means is I'll be there soon, bros. Yeah, we're waiting on him to get here. Uh, we couldn't Blake give him Sheldon. directions or anything, so we said you'll have to figure it out. We told him we got some bacon stuff crust from Pizza Hut. Yeah. You know. And then we started doing that finger thing where that we pointed at the crust. Does. I mean, it wasn't a video call, but I think he got the idea. <laughs> um and yeah, we wanted to send him to jail, but now Mr. Bunker is a fugitive from the law. Um he's been found guilty. So many different crimes. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, we never I mean, if I'm being honest. I kind of never felt like he would get justice delivered. But yeah. now it feels like his time's coming. Well, it's it's many justice leagues under the sea, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take that long, that much depth to really ca- probably capture this guy. Yeah. But, I mean, all's H.G. Wells that ends well. Uh, it was somber, you know, when you leave court. You spend so much time with all these people. You know, we're going up to all the hung jury. Yeah. Asking them to sign our yearbooks. Obviously, we everybody had to take photos. Yeah, Art, photos. Art had a yearbook. Um, I asked them to sign my bare chest with a Sharpie. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you're saying things like, you know, keep in touch. Like, seriously, like, we're such fucking good friends. Like, we had this experience mm-hmm. together. It's just like camp. You're definitely going to keep in touch with all those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gave I gave everybody one of my, like, you know, wallet-sized boudoir photographs with my phone number on the back. Boudoir. <laughs> now, I gave them a couple of my um, 8x10s burlesque uh, photos mm-hmm. with yep. my number on the back. Yeah. Um, it's uh, And I definitely think we'll all keep in touch for sure. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean... I think Judy Dench is going to definitely want to keep in touch. Obviously, Dredge... Judge Dread Judy. Yeah. I mean, she has to. Those beta fish inside her tummy are named after us. We also uh we also asked for um uh visit visitation rights for the court kangaroo. Yeah, we get we get once a week visitation with the kangaroo. Who I think they're sending back to Australia. Yeah. So we get half legally we have to go to Australia every week. Right. Uh to pet the kangaroo. We also got custody of David Crosby. <laughs> was another demand we added um and yeah and so you know we've kind of adopted both peon musk and david david crosby of course is our little baby we dress him up like a little baby where's a diaper a little bonnet uh he keeps talking about how humiliating it is but you can tell he really well you know and then we we say like he keeps talking about it and then you know what that means obviously we're both daddies um we know that that just means he's hungry so we of course we breastfeed publicly (laughs) 
we breastfeed David Crosby. So far, no milk. And I go, left. quit staring. I'm nursing. Let me use the breast pump room. Coles. Need- I'm walking into a Coles with my fucking baby, David Crosby. And this is the biggest stroller you've ever seen. Oh, it's a massive. It's almost a limo. Biggest stroller you've ever seen. Um, but it's, we, yeah, we feel like such a happy family now. Well, and if we don't get our way when we're out in public with our family, I mean, my fucking family comes first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your lives are lesser than my family. So if David Crosby is crying, kicking and screaming, trying to get out of the restraints that we put him in to force him into that stroller, keep saying shit like I'm an adult man. I can walk. Like, I don't give a shit. Please stop tasering me. <laughs> or I'm sorry if my large Sasquatch, undead Sasquatch child is openly defecating on the floor, ruining the man, fucking the mannequins. He's a teenager. He's horny. He's exploring his sexuality. Just to fuck up Cole's manager, Lawrence, that is your real name, you fucking bitch. Smack the shit out of you. Fuck Coles. Fuck Coles. No amount of Coles cash could make this right. <laughs> Fuck that. No, I'm not going to donate to a charity. You wouldn't let my teenage undead Sasquatch son finger the mannequins. Yeah, he's not necessarily just fucking them with his penis. He's doing other stuff too, like eating them out. He's confused. Finger banging them. He's figuring it out. Why do those mannequins have realistic areolas? It's fucked up. He's confused. They have smooth genitals, but real areolas. Why? It's your fault, Coles. My Another, family comes first. Add Coles to the fuck you list. Fuck yeah, you, Coles. Family always comes first. You expect me to? You expect me to? Fucking like control my family when I'm out in public? It's ridiculous. No, every table is a changing table. If I need to change David Crosby, I need to do it now. Instantly. David Crosby is very incontinent. We can't let him sit around in his own piss and shit. And yeah, every time you take the diaper off, he does shit a little more or piss more. But sorry. We're tasering him a lot. Sorry, Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) Fuck you, Cheesecake Factory. Your big ass fucking book menu. What do you think you are, the dictionary? Fuck you. Get a regular menu, one to two pages. If three people have to lift... David Crosby dressed as a baby onto the table where they're all trying to eat. You're here to serve me. You're a server. You're serving my family on our one night out. It's our fucking night out. That's our night, not yours. You serve us. We're going to cause a scene. Yeah. Yeah. You are going to make a specialty burger that's replacing the buns with two Oreo cheesecakes. Fuck you. That's... We're paying for it. It's about our experience. You speak to your manager, Susan. Fuck you. God damn it, Susan. Lawrence. We own this shit now. We're winners. We're winners. We're not fucking losers anymore. This is what it's no like. No more do I have to meekly walk into a cheesecake factory and say, um, uh, oh, oh, three, three, three pieces of banana cream cheesecake and one of everything else on the menu. Yeah, I'm sick of the of the stupid cheesecake factory forcing me to put on a chastity belt, cock ring. 
to in order to get my cheesecake. I have to publicly flog myself to get French silk? Fuck you! Yeah, maybe we did go to the wrong cheesecake factory, <laughs> but yeah, fuck okay, you still. Yeah, maybe it was a sex dungeon. Maybe I don't we, know. Maybe we went to the BDSM Cheesecake Factory. Whatever. The BDSM Factory. Not my problem anymore. We're winners. How are we supposed to know that BDSM doesn't stand for <laughs> big decorative slice of big decorative slice of mushroom? We thought it was some kind of a restaurant. The BDSM factory. <laughs> I don't care anymore. I have no cares anymore because I'm a fucking winner now. I want a big old court case. This is a historic court case. Um, you know, Judge Dredd Judy has said that this is going to be one of the most significant cases of all time. Um, we have already submitted this case to every law school in the country mm -hmm. uh, and demanding that they teach it in... Uh, a new class called uh, what we're calling conspiracy law. Yeah. Um, uh, we wrote a book about uh, the case. Of we already, we law school textbook. First thing we did was we hooked up, we hooked ourselves up with judge Ito from the uh, OJ trial case. I think he was the only one to not write a book. So we said, teach us how to be not like you. Cause we want to write big old books. Yeah. Huge books. Cheesecake Factory menu-sized books. Yeah. And so he showed up, and we just ignored everything he said <laughs> about his life and his yeah. experience. That's right. And we came up with a fucking kick-ass textbook. Oh, my God. This this textbook is so fucking baller. The cover is so fucking cool. There's a, It's an artist rendering of me and Art yeah. uh, kicking Mr. Bunker in the ass. Right. And he's flying through the air. And he's shitting out a rainbow that spells the cover of the book, which is um, Hart v. Stone v. Bunker. The most monumental, badass court trial of all time. You better learn it. And on the back is an artist rendering of baby David Crosby and Peon Musk making out. Well, it's yeah, it's who we dedicated the book to is our two children. And or it's two them children. and they're framed by a heart. And it's perfectly normal to open mouth kiss your sons. It's normal. It's expected in many cultures. Tom Brady does it. He's a fucking winner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is what winners do. Winners open mouth kiss their family. Open mouth kiss your families. Yeah. Go home tonight and open mouth kiss your grandma. Um. Now, that being said, Bunk Funkers, we are changed men. This is a paradigm shift. We are not just winners now, but physically we have both changed. Uh, as you'll know, Court was not easy on us. A lot uh, of shit happened. Physically. And I am now a completely hairless, mm -hmm. shiny, smooth um, man from laying on the, sleeping on the floor and being buffed every night by the uh, the court janitor. The D. Snyder, pink D. Snyder armor that you were wearing once pristine has, uh, the, 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 the dyes of it have been uh, waxed into your skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the armor... The armor has been whisked away by the powerful brush strokes, but mm -hmm. the pinkness of the armor has been uh, been fused to my skin permanently. Mm -hmm. um, I look like a, an anthropomorphic bubblegum ball. And yeah, 
I mean, this. But is, you're still a winner. I'm still a winner. I mean, I won. Yeah. That my name was on that suit. I of course uh, never removed any of the D. Snyder makeup. It has become uh, physically caked to my skin, along mm-hmm. with the D. Snyder armor. Right. Um, I now look like a hulking, uh, large, uh, disgusting gray husk man mm-hmm. with peeling, gross, flaky skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, very similar to some of the uh, uh, henchmen enemies in the Power Rangers. The goobies? I don't know. Putties? The putties. Yeah, you look kind of like a you look kind of like a corpse with armor. I look like a cor- <laughs> look like an armored corpse. Yeah, armored corpse. Uh, and my skin is constantly peeling because it is now caked with layers and layers and layers of D. Snyder makeup. Oh, it's bad. Um, my frizzy, crazy hair is standing up on end. I'm very ghoulish. <laughs> um, I'm a ghoulie. Yeah, he's a ghoul now. Art's basically a ghoul, and I'm an anthropomorphic bubblegum. <laughs> and we'll see what becomes of that. Um, I mean, obviously, we're winners now. Our lives are going to change for the better, for sure, 100%. Guarantee mm-hmm. it. Um, and bunk bunkers, we'll see. You know, I mean, we're fathers now. We're family men now. Are we going to have as much time to do this show? I mean, I have no idea what happened to my actual family. I haven't seen them in months, <laughs> but I have a new family now. And it's it's Art... Uh, it's, who's my brother husband. It's, <laughs> it's my, it's my teenage undead Sasquatch son, Peon Musk. And it's my adult who I forced to be a baby, David Crosby. Family first. Family first. Family above everything. Um, you know, that's if you, why. If you mess with me, you're messing with my family. And if you don't get that, you will once you see the, uh, the state carnival airbrush t-shirts that we got of all of our different faces. Together as one big happy family. Uh, And can I tell you, one of the best caricatures I've ever seen. This was a real, this was like the, the, uh, the, the Rembrandt of caricature work. Um, family first. So, you know, bunk funkers, you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, we're family men now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is life. And if the the podcast is very low on the totem pole for us, so Mm -hmm. episodes might not come out for like, Five or six months. You're just gonna have to deal. Yeah, and I mean, there's we don't really... have Mr. Bunker anymore forcing us to do this shit. So... Yeah, there's no reason for us to do it anymore. We were doing this before as uh, a forced thing, yeah. uh, and then we were doing it as an act of uh, defiance, right? And justice was served, and we've been set free. Um. So yeah, I mean, we'll see what becomes of it. I'm seeing nothing but upward trajectory for us. We are on the up. There's no way. I mean, it's it's like that old saying, like what comes up must keep going up forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what goes up continue continues I mean, to go that's, up. That's that's the laws of physics. That's <laughs> what goes up constantly goes up forever. And that's what the you know, and that's what Fig Newtons are all about. Is that that's why when you lose a balloon in the air, you never see it again. That's true because it goes on. We're like a balloon, as high up as the universe. So get ready, bunk bunkers. Because it's a whole new us. We're the new men unchanged, changed by the things. Um, you know, but first, I mean, but bunk bunkers, we're gonna deliver. We, hey, you know, we still deliver the whole enchilada when we do, when we feel like it. Yeah, and we're and the, today is no exception. We are gonna deliver you the whole enchilada. If we want to stuff an enchilada in your mind, tummies, by God, we're gonna stuff the whole enchilada in there. <laughs> we are gonna deliver this whole enchilada on de- on the death 
of Danny Casalero and the Octopus Conspiracy right here on Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. I am beyond we're recording. Shut up. Art, it is a well-known fact that you love pig facts. Oh, Andy, do I ever. Did you know that pigs were the first animals to be domesticated? Maybe as far back as 6,000 years ago? Did you know that, Andy? That you didn't? No. Um, or that pigs can run a seven-minute mile, huh? Andy, that's very impressive for a piggy. Or that pigs can squeal louder than a jet engine? Wee, wee, wee. Wee, wee. Or that pigs have 30-minute orgasms. Oh, baby, fuck, I'd be a pig. Yes, yes, yes. I've known you for more than a decade. I'm pretty sure you've told me about pig orgasms about 500 times. <laughs> I get it. It's impressive. But Art, while you know a lot about pigs, you don't know shit about octopuses, motherfucker. God damn, you dunked on me, bro. You're right. <laughs> pigs may be cool and all, but octopuses are where it's at, baby. You know they have a lot of organs? Three hearts and nine brains. They have one main brain and then a brain for each arm. Oh, and with all those brains, you know these things are smart art. They can solve problems and unscrew jars. <laughs> and Aristotle thought they were stupid. But now Aristotle is fucking dead and I have an octopus to do my chores at home. Who's the stupid one now, huh? Fucking Aristotle. <laughs> Did you know that male octopuses die after they give their cum to female octopuses? And that they either put it in the female's breathing tubes or just hand it to them with one of their arms? <laughs> then after the female's eggs hatch, her body commits cellular suicide? <laughs> huh. And let's not forget, it's thanks to these sexy, alluring creatures that humanity can enjoy incredibly hot tentacle hentai. The octopus is a great creature, Art. You know what, Andy? You are right. The octopus is a great creature, especially in the opinion of sick degenerates like yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but the octopus is also the name of an alleged shadowy group of people allegedly involved in some of the biggest events and scandals in the USA since the 1950s. The octopus conspiracy was formulated by the subject of today's episode, Joseph Daniel Danny Casalero. Now, Danny Casalero was a writer and freelance journalist who wound up dead in a West Virginia hotel in 1991. Danny's death was ruled a suicide, but that verdict is hotly contested. And only time will tell if our own verdicts on this whole enchilada of conspiracy and intrigue will be just as contested. Now, before we get into the octopus and Danny Casalero's untimely demise, we first have to talk about who Danny was. He was born June 16, 1947, the second of six children in a good Roman Catholic family. Danny's father was an obstetrician. This family seriously loved procreation. Now, as an adult, Danny married a former Miss Virginia, Terrell Pace. The pair had one son, Trey, of whom Danny was incredibly fond. Unfortunately, Danny and Terrell divorced after 10 years of marriage. Danny, though, was granted custody of Trey. Danny was beloved by his friends for his big personality and optimistic attitude. Danny was reportedly the type of person to always try to make others feel good. By all accounts, he seems like a good guy. 
Not that Art or I would ever be able to recognize a genuinely good person. Now, we wouldn't also be able to recognize someone as interesting as Danny Casolaro because Danny had a wide breadth of interests. He was an author writing poems and short stories. He was an amateur boxer. And Danny and Terrell even raised purebred Arabian horses. Wow. Time. God damn. Now, most importantly for this story, Danny also had an interest in journalism. According to Danny, he researched topics like Fidel Castro's intelligence network, Soviet Union naval forces in Cuba, and opium smuggled into the U.S. from China. While it's not clear how much of Danny's work was actually published, we can probably assume that some of it probably appeared in the Communist Times paper. Oh, my favorite newspaper. Yeah. Uh, As the 1970s came to a close, Danny moved on from his journalistic work and instead got involved with computer industry trade publications. Initially, he did freelance work, then bought a company that did newsletters like Computer Daily. Danny was allegedly the company's only writer. In 1989, Danny sold the company and made a little bit of money, but probably not as much as he could have or hoped to. After selling his publishing company, Danny got back into the journalism game. A contact in the tech industry turned him on to the Inslaw affair, and Danny started investigating the case. Researching Inslaw led Danny down a rabbit hole, and eventually he ended up piecing together a pretty big theory. Not long before his death, Danny was actively trying to sell his story about a wide-reaching conspiracy perpetrated by a loose collection of corrupt government officials, intelligence operatives, and organized crime. Danny believed this group was behind the Inslaw Affair, the October Surprise, BCCI, BNL, the scandal, not the band, and Iran-Contra. Basically, all the major political scandals of the 1980s in the USA. But this group was not just an 80s-based group like Wham!, Danny also believed the folks were responsible for JFK's assassination, among other things. Danny came to call the people behind these little schemes the octopus. Danny's research led him to believe that the group had its roots in the most obvious place, 1950s Albania. I knew it. It's always, you never expect the 1950s Albanians. Always 1950s Albania. Now, it was there that U.S. and U.K. intelligence forces trained exiled Albanian resistance fighters. They planned for these fighters to be parachuted into Albania to agitate for an uprising against the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, the Albanian operatives were captured or killed because one of the U.K. intelligence agents was actually a KGB mole. Now, why this event led... uh, Now, why this event led these CIA operatives to start a global conspiratorial cabal? Nobody knows. Not even Danny. Nevertheless, Danny believed the group had eight founders, hence the name, the Octopus, eight arms, and each founder oversaw different cells of operatives. In case people don't know what an octopus is, you know? Yeah. yeah. The Octopus operated outside the bounds of any government or authority, and they generated quiche from drug and weapons trafficking. So that's a pretty high-level overview of the Octopus, but we've got to serve you bunk funkers the whole enchilada on this topic. So let's get our membership cards to the Breakfast Club and talk about some 1980s political scandals. Danny first dipped his toe into the octopus-infested waters when he began researching the Inslaw Affair. Just like Danny, that's where we'll start. Inslaw refers to Inslaw Incorporated, which is a software company in Washington, D.C. They make case management software for courts or law uh, of law or for uh, corporate clients. The company was originally a not-for-profit organization called the Institute for Law and Social Research, 
and its original intent was to develop software to automate law enforcement offices. The founder of Inslaw, Bill Hamilton, developed a program called Promise, that's P-R-O-M-I-S, which is short for Prosecutors Management Information Systems. The Promise software was developed, not surprisingly, to help law enforcement offices organize their documents. It's case management software. You get the idea. Developed, uh, development for Promise was funded by grants and contracts from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, or LEAA. In 1980, Congress disbanded LEAA, and Bill Hamilton decided to turn Inslaw into a corporation, which was done in 1981. Then in 1982, Inslaw signed a big, fat, fucking $9.9 million contract Woo! with the U.S. government, baby. Oh, yeah. The U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, wanted to use Promise software in 94 U.S. attorneys' offices. In this venture, Inslaw dealt with the Executive Office of the United States Attorneys, or EOUSA. Ooh-wee-yow, damn! That's so many acronyms and initials in this topic, I'm smelling T-R-O-U-B-L-E. God damn, I love case management. Oh, yeah. Anyway, not long after signing this big old contract, there were some disagreements between the EOUSA and Inslaw. Inslaw began to realize that the contract's data rights clause could cause a problem with their plans to sell a commercial version of Promise. Uh, the, the clause basically gave the government complete control over any software and data delivered by Inslaw under the contract. So, Inslaw couldn't sell Promise without running afoul of the DOJ. To ease the government's mind, Inslaw explained that the version of Promise that would be sold commercially had enhancements made by Inslaw at its own expense after they stopped being funded by government grants. And, you know, that worked for a little while. Yeah. Then in December of 1982, the government asked Inslaw to hand over all the promised software and documentation that was produced under their contract. The DOJ later said they did this because they were worried about Inslaw's financial state. You see, at the time, the DOJ could only access Promise through a VAX computer timeshare with Inslaw. This was a point of contention in and of itself. During the first year of the contract with Inslaw, the DOJ did not have the necessary hardware to run Promise in the offices covered by the contract. So Inslaw delivered Promise through this timeshare arrangement. Inslaw installed Promise on a VAX computer in Virginia. The DOJ offices accessed Promise on the Inslaw VAX through remote terminals. They planned to use the timeshare until the DOJ could install the proper hardware to run Promise. As we said, though, the arrangement was not without controversy. The EOUSA said that Inslaw overcharged for doing this, and so the government withheld payments for this service. Regardless of the amount Inslaw was charging, the timeshare agreement meant that in the event that Inslaw failed as a business, the DOJ wouldn't have a copy of the Promise software or any of the data they were due as part of the contract. So it makes sense that the DOJ would ask for the software and data they were due under the contract. The only problem was those modifications Inslaw made to the Promise software. As you'll remember from just a bit ago, Inslaw's claim was that the modifications were proprietary to Inslaw and not something to which the DOJ was entitled under the contract. To meet the DOJ's demand while still protecting their own rights, Inslaw agreed to give the DOJ the Promise software, but only if the DOJ limited the distribution of the software. The DOJ did not like this arrangement because they wanted unlimited rights to promise. Whew. So while they were going back and forth about that, 
In August 1983, the DOJ addressed their hardware issue by buying Prime computers to install in the offices covered by the Inslaw contract. Speaking of the contract, after some revisions, Inslaw was allowed to hand over Promise software to the DOJ. Inslaw had a hard time sorting out which parts of Promise were developed with government funding versus which parts were added at their own expense, so they just installed a version with all the enhancements on the DOJ's Prime computers. Even after doing this, the DOJ still had issues with Inslaw, so in February of 1984, they canceled part of the contract and stopped paying Inslaw. This was a major blow to Inslaw's finances, and the company declared bankruptcy in February of 1985. All right, all right. We know you legal freak bunk funkers loved all that contract dispute stuff. I mean, you couldn't get enough of our court case, so you just had to get a little bit more in this another taste. You know and you vintage tech freaks probably had a great time hearing about Vax and Prime. But hey, now it's time to talk about something everybody enjoys. Suing the U.S. government. Oh, man, I love to do it. Because that's what Inslaw did, baby. Bill Hamilton made some juicy allegations like that the government stole Promise and distributed the software illegally, cheating Inslaw out of millions of dollars. Hamilton claimed that the DOJ violated parts of the contract stipulating limited distribution by installing Promise in multiple offices. Hamilton also said he was contacted by folks in the Canadian government asking for instructions on how to use Promise. And all this despite the fact that Insla had never sold Promise to the Canadian government, huh? Where these floppy disks got headed? Jeez. U.S. government. That's a maple leaf-sized problem there. <laughs> um... You can you yeah you can mount uh, the promise software, but can you mount the promise software? <laughs> I suppose so. Those floppy disks had pretty big holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> they were the big ones, you know. Yeah, they were the uh, before. Yeah, the the however many kilobytes. Yeah, was on there. You know what I mean? Megabytes. Uh, beyond these scandalous claims, Insla also alleged the DOJ was biased against them. The Promise project manager for the DOJ was someone named C. Madison Brewer, who was previously employed as Inslaw's general counsel. Apparently, Brewer was fired by Inslaw for, for you know, for cause, according to Inslaw. So they felt Brewer had an axe to grind with them. Associate Attorney General D. Lowell Jensen was on the DOJ's project oversight committee when it entered into the contract with Inslaw. Jensen helped in developing a case management system that was a competitor of promise. So Inslaw alleged Jensen overlooked Brewer's clear bias. Of course, the DOJ denied these allegations of prejudice. They said they owned the software because it was developed while Bill Hamilton was working for them. Even though the DOJ also later said that promise wasn't a good enough product to meet their needs. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> fucking attorneys. God damn. Uh, because of this perceived bias against Inslaw, Inslaw's attorneys made multiple requests for a special prosecutor to be appointed to investigate the situation and the government officials connected to the scandal. But the government wasn't the only party with well-connected individuals on its side. One of Inslaw's attorneys was Elliot Richardson, a 33rd degree Freemason, just throwing that out there, uh, who held positions in U.S. President Richard Nixon's cabinet, eventually serving as U.S. Attorney General. In that role, Richardson chose to resign rather than dismiss the special prosecutor who was investigating the Watergate break-ins. And let me tell you, bunkfunkers, do yourselves a favor and go watch a video of Elliot Richardson talking. 
What a voice on this guy. Here's a clip. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash. It caught on in a flash. <laughs> he did the mash. He did the monster mash. <laughs> that clip, of course, comes to us from testimony delivered by Richardson to the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on the Supreme Court nomination of Robert Bork. <laughs> Stay tuned to C-SPAN for more. <laughs> anyway. In 1988, federal bankruptcy judge, Judge Basin, ruled the government did steal promise from Inslaw. Except uh, Basin put it better, saying the DOJ took, quote, took, converted, and stole, end quote, the software by, quote, trickery, fraud, and deceit, end quote. Whew. This ruling was upheld on appeal by a federal district court later in 1988. But eventually, Judge Basin's ruling was overturned on another appeal in 1991. Inslaw appealed to the Supreme Court, but they passed on hearing the case. Interesting to note that the 1991 ruling was issued the day before the DOJ was due to hand over copies of their promised software to Bill Hamilton so it could be analyzed and compared to Inslaw's promised software. The software the DOJ would have had to provide included the Field Office Information Management System, or FOMIS, which was in use by the FBI. Allegedly, FOMIS was based on the promised software. Also interesting to note is that Judge Basin was not retained as a bankruptcy judge when his term ended. In a letter to the Court of Appeals, Judge Basin floated the idea that his ruling in the Inslaw case might have caused the DOJ to influence the selection process. All right. We know what you're thinking, bugfuckers. <laughs> Why the fuck do I now know so much about Inslaw and its over 30-year-old case management software dispute? I mean, it's a valid question. I wanted to learn more about Danny Casolaro, Andy and Art have finally jumped the shark. <laughs> Yeah, at this point, yeah. this is the point where we jump the shark. Yeah. <laughs> and we hear you and we're getting to it. And to be fair, was there ever any point where we hadn't jumped the shark? I think episode one, we jumped the shark yeah. right away. The shark's been jumping us. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've got sharkception. Anyway, the Inslaw case actually spawned a conspiracy theory. theory. See, we told you it's conspiracy related. Most of the conspiracy-related information on the Inslaw case came from a guy named Michael... Uh, fuck, I had, it, I had it prepared. Wow. You can't pronounce this name? Italian guy? Riconosciuto. Riconosciuto. I had it prepared and I forgot. Yeah, he's like... This, guy's, this guy is a, uh, the cured ham of conspiracy theorists. Oh, Riconosciuto. He, he, <laughs> if you look up a photo of him, he does look like cured ham. <laughs> a very funny-looking individual. Um, now, most of the conspiracy-related information on the Inslaw case came from a guy named Michael Riconosciuto. And in 1990, Bill Hamilton agreed to meet with Danny Casolaro as part of Danny's journalist inquiry into the Inslaw affair. Um, during that meeting, uh, Bill Hamilton gave Danny a memo of allegations, which Danny got hooked on the conspiracy angle uh, of the Inslaw story. That memo was written by Michael Riconosciuto. 
But who is this fucking guy? Well, Rakanashudo was described by author Ron Rosenbaum as, quote, rogue scientist slash weapons designer slash platinum miner <laughs> slash alleged crystal meth manufacturer. <laughs> we should all be so lucky to be described that way. <laughs> Good Lord, end quote. And honestly, that description is pretty fucking fair. <laughs> According to reporting in the Village Voice, Rakanashudo was kind of a Bob Lazar type, okay? Yeah. He was a gifted child who, at the age of 10, wired his neighborhood with a functional private telephone system. He won his eighth grade science fair with a model three-dimensional sonar system. And as a teen, he became well-known enough in the laser technology community to be invited to Stanford University as a summer research assistant. Now... Stanford faculty member, Nobel Prize winner, and co-inventor of the fucking laser, <laughs> Dr. Arthur uh, Shallow, great name, uh, remembered Rakanashudo even. You don't forget a 16-year-old youngster who shows up with his own argon laser. <laughs> I can confirm this is true. You never do really forget a 16-year-old with an argon laser. <sighs> Precious memories. Eventually, Rakanashudo began working as an engineer at a mine in Maricopa, California. Then, during the 80s, Rakanashudo was the director of research for a joint business venture between a security firm, the Wackenhut Corporation, and the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians. Operations of the joint venture, according to Rakanashudo, were located at the Cabazon Reservation in Indio, California. So, this seems like an odd match, right? Wackenhut is, again, a security firm. And the Cabazon Band is a small group of the descendants of indigenous people who lived in the Coachella Valley. Well, uh, to explain, John Philip Nichols, who was the Cabazon Band's financial manager at the time, wanted to take advantage of the sovereign status of the tribe to build a weapons manufacturing facility on the reservation and then sell the weapons to Central American rebels. Because the Cabazon Band is a sovereign nation that, that is not under the authority of the USA, you can do whatever the fuck you want there. The only laws you have to follow are the ones the Cabazons enact. Even better for Nichols, projects at the reservation could get special government funding because the Cabazons were considered a minority group. According to Rakanashudo, the Wackenhut Cabazon joint venture was started up to help aid covert operations in the Middle East and Central America. The Contras in Nicaragua were one of the big beneficiaries of the work done by the joint venture. Now, if you don't know who the Contras were, you're in luck because we're going to explain it and find ourselves in the thick of yet another 1980s political scandal. Put on your Zubas and let's get to it, bunk funkies. <laughs> the Contras were a right-wing Nicaraguan rebel groups uh, rebelling against the socialist uh, Sandinista government in Nicaragua um, and fighting to overthrow it, okay? The Contras were terrorists and were heavily funded by the U.S. government. Uh, the Contras were also the recipients of funds generated in the Iran-Contra affair which was a scandal involving sales of weapons to Iran in uh, contravention of an arms embargo. The Contras were originally provided aid by the U.S. government, which agreed with the Contras' socialist government-hating policy. Then, in 1984, the U.S. Congress made it illegal for the U.S. government to send money to the Contras. So, the Reagan administration cooked up the scheme to flip the cash generated from illegal Iranian arms sales to the Contras, which was also illegal! And, you know, do we need to mention that this whole thing was fucking illegal? I mean, <laughs> hello? Anyway, 
Iran-Contra resulted in a few convictions of folks in the Reagan administration, not all of which held up on appeal. After Reagan left office, President George H.W. Big Daddy Bush uh, pardoned many of the people involved in Iran-Contra. It's also worth noting that the investigation into the scandal was pretty heavily obstructed, eh, probably covered up. <laughs> oh, man. This is about as American a tale as you can get. Force indigenous people onto a reservation, allow a corporation to abuse the people's special status to obtain government funding. The corporation then uses the funding to build weapons. The corporation then ships the weapons to another country to help terrorists overthrow the government as part of a proxy war with another world power. Oh, and by the way, don't forget that the U.S. government helped create political turmoil in Nicaragua, originally through imperial occupation and then by installing a dictator to rule. USA! 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 Uh, so anyway, uh, Reconosciuto claimed that while he worked for the Wackenhut joint venture at the Cabazon Reservation, he was asked by the DOJ to make modifications to Inslaw's Promise software. The modifications were described as a, quote, backdoor that would allow someone to access the computers on which this version of Promise was installed. Reconosciuto also claimed that the modified Promise software could do more than just let people spy on its users. Apparently, the modified software was used to monitor the energy grid, which could help intelligence agencies track the movements of spies by watching for spikes. Uh, Reconosciuto uh, said the software was used by the military to track hostile military assets and predict their movements. This was like a forerunner of some of the software that exists today that tries to predict crimes before they happen. One thing even Promise couldn't predict is that Michael Reconosciuto could find him would find himself involved in yet another big time eighties scandal. <laughs> Reconosciuto claimed that in nineteen eighty, he and a man named Earl Bryan, who was a director and controlling shareholder of a government consulting firm and inslaw competitor called Hardon or Hadron. My bad. Sorry. Freudian slip. Call Hadron Inc. paid $40 million to the Iranian government to get them to not release American hostages being held in Iran. Hardon Inc. is our... That's our, that's our, that's corporation. our corporation. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. Um, okay. So stick stick with us on this one, Bunkfunkers. It's all going to tie together. All of this might make sense, uh, make some semblance of a sense in the end. Not to sound too much like Andy here, but you have to understand a bit of history to understand the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980. So, going back to World War I, Iran, or at the time, the sublime state of Persia, um, was invaded by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans fought with the Russian Empire inside Persian territory. Occupation by the Ottomans, Russians, and British really weakened the position of Persia's ruler, Ahmad Shah Kahar. Uh, Kahar was overthrown in a coup in 1921, with uh, Reza, Reza Khan taking over and becoming the Shah of Iran. And during World War II, the British and Soviets began to send troops to occupy Iran and trying to force the Shah to abdicate in favor of his son, Muhammad Reza uh, Pahlavi. So the governments were afraid the Shah would allow the Nazis, plus the Shah, uh, plus the Shah refused to allow Soviet troops to train or supply in Iranian territory. Oh, the governments were afraid the Shah would ally with the Nazis, and he refused to allow Soviet troops to train or supply in Iranian territory. So Reza Shah was sent into exile with Muhammad becoming the new Shah. U.S. and British intelligence helped Muhammad Shah carry out a coup to remove a political opponent and to extend his power. 
then the U.S. kept supporting Muhammad even as public sentiment turned against him. Eventually, this unrest culminated in the Shah being overthrown in 1979 and exiled to the USA. Uh, an Islamic theocratic government was installed with Grand Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini as Iran's leader. Opinions of the USA were pretty negative in Iran, and revolutionaries attempted to take over the U.S. embassy in Tehran in February and September 1979. The situation got really volatile when the USA allowed the exiled Shah to get cancer treatments in New York. There were rumors uh, that the U.S. was working on backing the Shah in another coup to retake Iran. Then, in November, then on November 4th, 1979, demonstrations outside the U.S. embassy escalated and the demonstrators ended up taking over the embassy and holding 52 Americans hostage. The hostage takers demanded the return of the Shah to Iran to stand trial. Now that we understand the hostage crisis, let's understand why, in 1980, Michael Reconosciuto and Earl Bryan paid $40 million to the Iranians to keep these hostages hostage. An important thing to note here is that 1980 was a presidential election year in the USA. Incumbent President Jimmy Carter was dealing with the hostage crisis while also campaigning against Hollywood anti-communist legend Ronald Reagan. During the election cycle, Carter said that the American hostages would be released, but not until after the election was over. The Reagan campaign got paranoid that Carter might use the hostages to his advantage in the election by purposely withholding positive developments and only making them public if he began to fall in the polls close to the election date. Reagan's campaign even mentioned that Carter might do this to the press, hoping that even if something positive just did happen naturally, people would think it was a political stunt by Carter. Some have made the claim, now referred to as the October Surprise, that the Reagan campaign paid off the Iranian government to not release the hostages before the election because it gave Reagan a better chance at winning the presidency. Well, as we know, Reagan did win the election, uh, and what's interesting is that the hostages were released literally minutes after Reagan finished his inaugural address. Kind of sus, but for what it's worth, Congress investigated the claims and determined that no such deal was made. Regardless, Reconosciuto claimed, maintained it did happen. And he also said that as payment for helping Reagan win the election, Earl Bryan was given permission to illegally distribute the promised software and keep the earnings. The money made from these illegal sales of promise were also used to fund some of the aforementioned covert operations. Reconosciuto claimed that uh, Hadron Inc., Earl Bryan's company, uh, tried to buy Inslaw and Promise in 1983. Bill Hamilton refused to sell, and that was allegedly the reason for the DOJ to stop paying Inslaw. Earl Bryan was close friends with then-Attorney General uh, uh, Ed Meese, and Reconosciuto claimed Bryan used his connections to uh, retaliate against Bill Hamilton for not selling Inslaw. Again, for what it's worth, Earl Bryan denied any role in the alleged October surprise deal or in the Inslaw affair. That said, in 1995, Earl Bryan was convicted of fraud in, in relation to him inflating the values of companies owned by his venture capital fund. So, you know, just because he denied it doesn't mean he didn't supply it. Well, someone who did supply it was Michael Reconosciuto. And by it, I mean an affidavit to the to a U.S. House of Representatives committee which was investigating the Inslaw case. The affidavit detailed his allegations related to promise and government corruption. In the affidavit, Reconosciuto also said that he had been threatened that if he cooperated with the Inslaw investigation, both he and his wife would be arrested. Sure enough, 
Eight days after submitting his affidavit, Michael Reconosciuto was arrested on charges of distributing methamphetamine and methadone. His wife was arrested later on other charges. Reconosciuto, who was eventually convicted, claimed the charges were a frame job, all designed to keep him from helping in the investigation. In fact, he said the alleged drug lab on his property was just part of a sophisticated mining operation. Interestingly, Reconosciuto had been arrested in the 1970s also on drug charges, for which he also says he was framed. Jesus, this guy is so well framed, you should hang him on a fucking wall. <laughs> Gabago. Gabago. <laughs> Anywho, Reconosciuto made some pretty damning claims, but not everybody was buying it. Nicholas Bua, a, uh, a special counsel appointed to review the Inslaw case ruling, did not think Reconosciuto was a credible witness. Bua's investigation determined that Reconosciuto gave inconsistent dates for his time working on Promise, even sometimes saying he worked on Promise at times before the software had even been delivered to the DOJ. Heck, Bill Hamilton even undercut Reconosciuto's claims on the abilities of Promise. Hamilton said the software could really only log and track data. It was still up to a human to decide what to do with that information. Witnesses told Bua's investigators that Reconosciuto had truly worked on the uh, Cabazon Reservation. They said he worked in an office behind the casino. <laughs> I don't know if that's like office in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Bua also determined that Wackenhut did indeed have a joint venture with the Cabazon band, but Reconosciuto was never listed as a Wackenhut employee. It doesn't sound like the venture was super successful either. During the partnership, uh, Wackenhut only bid on two government contracts, it did not win either one. <laughs> Bua also interviewed Earl Bryan, who said that he didn't know Michael Reconosciuto. He also said he had never been employed by Wackenhut and also that he had never worked at the Cabazon Reservation. But remember, maybe Earl Bryan isn't a reliable witness either. Uh, even if Nicholas Bua didn't believe Michael Reconosciuto, Danny Casalero did. Danny came to believe that the modified Promise software was used by the Bank of Credit Commerce International, or BCCI, to track secret accounts. Danny also believed that BCCI was connected to the Banca Nacionale del Lavoro, or BNL. How'd I do, Art? That sounds great. All right. Again, we don't mean bare naked ladies. By this point, you probably guessed it, Bunk Bunkers. BCCI and BNL are yet two more 1980 scandals. There's more scandals in this story than there are seagulls in a flock of seagulls. And we don't mean flock of seagulls. Anyway, BCCI was a bank started in 1972 by Pakistani businessman Aga Hassa Abedi. The goal of the bank was to be a viable alternative to Western financial institutions focused on banking uh, people in developing countries in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. The bank was significantly financially supported by the United Arab Emirates, in fact, the UAE was BCCI's largest depositor, borrower, and largest shareholder for most of its existence. BCCI eventually operated in more than 70 countries, including developed Western countries like the USA, the UK, and Switzerland. At one point, BCCI had more than $20 billion in assets. Despite this apparent success, BCCI was basically just a big Ponzi scheme benefiting the folks in charge. BCCI was also quite good at laundering money, helping famous dictators like Panama's Manuel Noriega and Iraq's Saddam Hussein hide their assets overseas. The bank collapsed eventually and was forced to close in 1991. This was following a whole bunch of investigations by various regulatory bodies and governments into BCCI's practices. In the end, $10 billion came up missing and was never accounted for. 
One American official described the BCCI failure as, quote, the largest bank fraud in world financial history, end Ooh. quote. Wow. While uh, BCCI was being investigated, the bank hired a bunch of PR folks with questionable ethics and uh, big-time law firms in the USA to file overly forceful lawsuits against critical journalists. It seemed BCCI wasn't even opposed to more extreme tactics to silence critics. One UK journalist was beaten, stabbed, and had their BCCI research stolen. Good Lord. BCCI also got pretty cozy with U.S. politicians, baby. BCCI affiliates donated heavily to presidential campaigns, with some higher-ups at the affiliates getting close with U.S. President Carter, even. So maybe it's not so hard to believe that BCCI would use its political connections to score the promised software, then use its lack of scruples to deploy the software for money laundering or whatever. And remember, Bunkfunkers, Danny believed that BCCI was connected to BNL. The scandal around BNL also came to be called Iraqgate. So to understand this, not to sound too much like myself, you have to understand a little history as well. U.S. President Ronald Reagan's administration began a shift in U.S. policy toward Iraq, mostly because Iraq was an opponent of Iran. In the early 1980s, the U.S. normalized its diplomatic relations with Iraq and started financially supporting Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War. In 1983, Iraq was even added to the Commodity Credit Corporation, or CCC, program. The CCC program was run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and issued loans to other countries to purchase U.S. agricultural goods. The U.S. government's friendly stance toward Iraq was reconsidered by the U.S. Congress in 1988 after Saddam Hussein gassed several thousand Kurds as part of a genocidal campaign against the Kurds. Nevertheless, Presidents Reagan and Bush kept trying to have good relations with Iraq, seeking more influence in the area. Of course, friendly relations completely fell apart in August 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait, which started the Persian Gulf War. Even before Iraq invaded Kuwait, the U.S.'s relations with Iraq were getting uh, quite a bit of media of attention. BNL had a bank branch in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in the USA. The branch manager, Christopher Drogel, uh, was accused of loaning or otherwise crediting the Iraq government with $4 billion, which Iraq used for illegal purchases of arms. Investigations determined that some of the frauds uh, funds were connected with the CCC program. It was alleged that Iraq was receiving these CCC loans, buying U.S. agricultural goods for less than the loan amounts, and using the extra money to buy weapons. There was no proof that U.S. President Bush knew about BNL's activity, but the Bush administration kept sending money to Iraq even after the uh, corruption was uncovered. For what it's worth, after four years of investigation into BNL, then-Attorney General Janet Reno released a report in 1995 summarizing the findings. The investigation found no evidence of a Bush, Bush administration cover-up or conspiracy. Now, on its face, there's maybe a little bit of connection between BCCI and BNL, but they seem to be separate issues. But reporting at the time established a link between the two banks, and not just Danny Casalero's research either. In 1989, a Lebanese businessman, uh, Mohamed Hamoud, took out a $7 million loan from BNL, arranged through the Atlanta office, to supply high-grade steel to Iraq. A fun note, a large share of the loan was guaranteed by U.S. taxpayers, and some of the loan proceeds were used to support Iraq's military. Hamoud uh, held shares of BCCI and shares of the holding company for First American Bank. First American Bank was secretly owned by BCCI. 
While this seems like a pretty clear link between the two, not everybody is convinced that the Mohammed Hamoud who took out the BNL loan is the same Mohammed Hamoud who was a BCCI shareholder. Well, unlike Andy, Danny Castellera wasn't so friggin' boring. Snorefest. When Danny found a connection, he didn't say it might not be the guy and move on. He actually considered it. Danny Castellero actually worked on a good story instead of just yucking everybody's yum all the time like Andy. Hey, look, I'm sorry, but they might not be the same guy, okay? I need hard, burly proof to get me to conclusion. Yeah, okay. I've seen all your brawny paper towel man drawings. I know what you're going on about. Man, he's so fucking sexy. He's a very sexy paper towel. I, that's a fuckable paper towel. That's a fuckable tube of paper towels. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, Danny's investigative efforts continued even after Michael Riconosciuto was arrested. On August 5th, 1991, Danny called Bill McCoy, a retired U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command Officer. Good Lord. Uh, Danny told Bill that he was working on a story on The Octopus for Time Magazine. Danny also said he was working with Jack Anderson who had a long history of publishing stories critical of government officials and revealing corruption. Danny also told Bill McCoy that he'd been offered money from publishers Little Brown and Time Warner to finish his investigation. On the same date, August 5th, 1991, Danny chatted with friend Ben Mason. Danny told Ben that he'd been having trouble sleeping lately because, well, for three months, he'd been getting threatening phone calls during the night. Eh, you get used to it after a while. You get used to it after a while. Now, all this time, uh, now at this time, Danny was preparing for a trip to Mattensburg. Uh, Martinsburg, sorry. Oh. Huh. Well, there you go, bunkfuckers. Typo. Danny was preparing for a trip to Martinsburg, West Virginia. In Martinsburg, Danny planned to meet with a source who allegedly worked in the IRS facility in Martinsburg. The source was allegedly providing Danny with IRS data on octopus targets. Because of the progressing octopus investigation and the unsettling late night phone calls, Danny told his brother that if something happened to him while he was in West Virginia, his brother should not believe it was an accident. The next day, August 6th, 1991, Danny's friend and housekeeper, Olga, helped him pack for his trip to Martinsburg. Olga later remembered helping Danny pack a thick stack of papers into a briefcase. Olga also later told the Village Voice that she answered the phone at Danny's house several times that day and heard the threatening phone calls. According to Olga, a call about 9 o'clock in the morning came in and the man on the line said, quote, I will cut his body and throw it to the sharks, end quote. This sounds pretty threatening to me, but hear me out. It could also be some weird slang for saying that someone is your friend or chum. Think about it, Art. No. Okay. Well, anyway, Olga also answered the phone less than an hour later, and a different man said, drop dead. Now, to be fair, we don't know if this call was for Danny or Olga. <laughs> maybe someone, maybe they, I don't know. Oh, Andy, you always consider all the angles at the wrong time. Yeah. A third call came in later, but nobody said anything. Olga heard music on the line, like there was a radio at the other end of the call. A fourth call came in later, same as the third. Finally, a fifth call came in later in the night with just silence on the other end. So clearly, this phone harasser liked to start off big and taper off, which I can relate to for sure. <laughs> uh, after August 6th, Danny's exact movements and whereabouts are harder to determine. We know that he went to Martinsburg, and it's not totally clear uh, what all he did there. 
the Martinsburg Morning Journal reported that at some point on August 9th, 1991, Danny went to a pizza hut. He was flirting with the waitress, telling her she had nice eyes and quoting The Great Gatsby. He tried to order beer, but the waitress told him she couldn't sell him alcohol unless he bought food, so he ordered some za. Around 2.30 p.m. on the 9th, Danny met William Richard Turner at the Sheraton Hotel, which is where Danny was staying. Turner was a Honeywell engineer and allegedly used to work for a defense contractor. According to Turner, he gave Danny documents which contained evidence of corruption. After this, Danny spent a few hours at a restaurant in town. The bartender said he looked lonely and depressed. About 5 o'clock in the afternoon, witnesses saw Danny at Heatherfield's, which is the bar in the Sheraton Hotel. Witnesses saw him talking to a man described by a waitress as, quote, maybe Arab or Iranian, end quote. At 5.30 p.m., Danny met Mike Looney. Mike wasn't a contact for the story. He was actually staying in the room next to Danny's at the hotel. Looney later said, quote, Casalero said he was there to meet an important source who was going to give him what he needed to solve the case, end quote. Danny told Mike he was expecting his source to arrive around 9 p.m. Danny and Mike chatted a bit at 5.30 and then again around 8 p.m. Danny talked with Mike until 9 o'clock rolled around when he told Mike he needed to go make a phone call. When Danny came back after a few minutes, he told Mike the source had, quote, blown him off, which I think means that the source didn't show up. It's not a sex thing. Um, but Danny and Mike continued talking until about 9.30 that night. Then about 10 o'clock, Danny got a coffee at a convenience store near the hotel. That was the last time anyone reported seeing Danny Casalero alive. Then on Saturday, August 10th, 1991, about 12 p.m., the housekeeping staff at the Sheridan discovered Danny naked in the bathtub of his room. Danny's wrists have been deeply slashed. One cut was deep enough to sever a tendon. Ultimately, there were three or four cuts on Danny's right wrist and seven or eight cuts on his left wrist. There was blood splattered on the bathroom wall and on the floor. Allegedly, the scene was so disturbing, one of the housekeepers at the hotel fainted after seeing it. Paramedics arrived on the scene and found an empty old Milwaukee beer can, a half-empty bottle of wine, and a single-edged razor. Aside from these items, there were some strange things about the scene. For one, Danny had a shoelace wrapped around his neck, and there were also two trash bags under Danny's body. Through the bathroom was, though the bathroom was gruesome, the rest of the room appeared to be tidy. On the desk, there was a legal pad and a pen. One page was torn from the pad, and on it was written, quote, to those who I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. End quote. When police arrived to investigate, they found no sign of forced entry or a struggle. Given this and the alcohol and the note, police believed right away that this was pretty clearly a suicide. Further investigation found four additional razor blades still in their packaging. Interviews with folks in the Sheridan did not yield anything suspicious. Nobody had heard or seen anything weird. And that includes the folks occupying the rooms next to Danny's, which were both rented at the time of his death. One thing police didn't find in Danny's room were his work papers. Olga, the housekeeper, remembered Danny leaving with a big stack of papers in his briefcase. And Danny supposedly got more documents from William Richard Turner. None of these documents were in the room, and they were never recovered. On Sunday, August 11th, 1991, Danny's body was embalmed, despite the fact that his family had not yet even been informed of his death, much less provided permission for his body to be embalmed. 
The family didn't finally find out Danny was dead until Monday, August 12th. While this seems weird, the authorities in Martinsburg said this was done per their routine procedures. Also on Sunday, August 11th, Danny's hotel room at the Sheraton was professionally cleaned. Keep in mind, this was just one day after Danny's body was discovered. The cleaning crew ended up throwing out items that were potential evidence. For example, one of the housekeepers noticed a couple of towels appeared to have been used to clean up blood in the room, only a few minutes after Danny's body had been found. Was the housekeeping staff trying to clean the blood? Or were the towels there when the housekeeper initially found Danny's body? Nobody is really certain, and the professional cleaners threw out those towels, so we'll likely never know for sure. While this is bad enough, the police, who should probably know how to handle evidence, drained the bathtub in Danny's room without the use of a strainer. So who knows what kind of evidence literally washed down the drain. Later in the week on August 14th, an autopsy was performed on Danny's body at the University of Virginia. The coroner ruled the death a suicide and unsurprisingly listed the cause of death as blood loss. The coroner also determined that Danny died between one to four hours before his body was discovered, so sometime between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. on August 10th. The autopsy notes bruises on Danny's arm and head, and that the tips of three fingernails were missing. These injuries, if you will, were never explained, uh, and, but they possibly indicate that Danny was not actually alone at the time of his death. It's worth mentioning that, too, that the autopsy was more difficult since Danny's body had already been embalmed. Five months later, in January 1992, the Virginia State Medical Examiner's Office performed another autopsy on Danny's body. Dr. Frost, the medical examiner, also ruled Danny's death a suicide. Once again, blood loss was cited as the cause of death. According to Dr. Frost, Danny's body showed signs that he was suffering from the early stages of multiple sclerosis, or MS, though it was probably minor severity at this point. Multiple sclerosis is a disease that destroys the covering of the nerves, which can cause, frankly, all kinds of symptoms. At the time of Danny's death, and at the time of this recording, there is no cure for MS. While this finding was not expected, there's reason to believe that Danny may have already been aware he had MS. One of his friends, who was a nurse, reported that Danny, several weeks before his death, approached his friend for information about MS. Danny told his nurse friend it was for a story he was working on. His friend gave him some information on the disease and also told him that it was incurable. Toxicology analysis reveals traces of several drugs in Danny's body. Uh, acetaminophen? Acetaminophen? Tylenol. It's fucking Tylenol. Over the counter. You can get it. Yeah. And not surprisingly, alcohol. There were also traces of antidepressants, which seemed weird to Danny's family. Danny's brother, Tony, who is a doctor and also the head uh, team physician for the NFL's Washington football team. Next name pending. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. I'll have to update this episode whenever that changes. Said uh, Danny had never been treated for depression. The analysis also found traces of Vicodin, uh, which is a prescription painkiller. And in Danny's hotel room, investigators found a bottle of painkillers, which had been prescribed to Danny in 1988 after a root canal. What? After I had my root canal, all I got was a kiss on the forehead from my dentist and an unrelated punch in the stomach from my wife. Well, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you don't deserve to feel good, Andy. I guess that makes sense. Kissing your dentist. He kissed me. On the forehead. <laughs> Just on the forehead? Well. 
some of the other parts of me were numb at the time, so <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> now back to the story. According to the toxicology report, quote, there was nothing present in any way that could have incapacitated Casalero, so he would have been in uh, incapable of struggling against an assailant, let alone been sufficient to kill him, end quote. Despite all of this investigative work, something didn't sit quite right with Danny's family and friends. They had a hard time believing Danny committed suicide. In fact, Danny's brother, Dr. Tony, pointed out that they had a sister, Lisa, who overdosed on drugs at age 17 after moving to San Francisco. Tony said, quote, it's actually that issue that makes the question of Danny committing suicide almost impossible. He was sort of angry at her. The effect was so damaging, end quote. Danny's family also pointed out that Danny had an aversion to blood and needles. A woman who dated Danny for seven years, Wendy Weaver, said, quote, Danny hated the sight of blood. Additionally, he didn't like to be seen naked. To be found in a tub naked? That's not Danny, end quote. So I guess he showered in his fucking swim trucks or what? Uh, is that not what we all do? <laughs> I mean, sure, I wear European-style swim briefs, which are two or three sizes too small. But don't we all put on swimwear to get in the shower? No? Hmm. Yeah, maybe that explains all the weird looks I got in the community showers in college. I guess it could have also been my gangster Tweety Bird tattoo that covers my entire back. <laughs> Anywho... <laughs> The people who knew Danny felt like he didn't have the personality of someone who would commit suicide, and that even if he was going to commit suicide, doing it by slashing his wrist was not in keeping with Danny's personality. Ann Clank, a television producer and one of Danny's friends, said, quote, he would have jumped off the Empire State Building with firecrackers, end quote. And while we can all agree that would be a kick-ass way to die, the doubts surrounding a suicide verdict for Danny's death meant that people suspected something else, something foul, and for once, I'm not talking about my personality and speech patterns and appearance and hygiene. I'm talking about foul play. Some people think Danny Casalero was murdered. These people wasted no time in wildly speculating about Danny's death, and I love it. <laughs> right to it, baby. Yeah. His family didn't quite know what to think, and uh, to be fair, some weird things did happen, and more information was revealed that added to the suspicion. For starters, at Danny's funeral, a senior U.S. Army officer highly decorated, arrived at the funeral in a limousine. The officer was with a man dressed in plain clothes. The officer approached Danny's coffin mere moments before it was lowered into the ground. The officer then placed a medal on the coffin's lid, saluted, then left the funeral. Nobody recognized the officer and his identity has never been determined. I believe the Casaleros got back to the house after the funeral or, you know, after the service there's like 50 people there. They're all asking each other, hey, who was that army officer? Yeah, what like, was the deal we with We thought that? you knew. Yeah. And they were all like, no, nobody fucking knew. Nobody knows. There were also questions about what exactly Danny was doing in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Uh, while Danny's friend Olga remembered helping him pack a bunch of papers, you'll recall no papers on Danny's investigative efforts were recovered from his hotel room. As it, turn out, as it turns out, none of Danny's papers were missing from his personal office. And witnesses could not recall seeing him with any papers or files while in Martinsburg. The housekeeper at the hotel even said there were no papers or files visible at any point during Danny's stay. This is especially interesting considering Danny met with and received documents from William Richard Turner. Well, as it turns out, 
That meeting may have never actually taken place. We only know about it because Turner claimed it happened. But Turner told the story inconsistently. And Turner was previously convicted of making false statements. So he may not be the most reliable witness. We keep saying that about a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, kind of a motif. Yeah. Regardless of Turner's truthfulness, there's at least the possibility that Danny didn't take any documents with him to Martinsburg and didn't receive any new documents while he was there. Then there were additional investigations into Danny's death, uh, including as part of Special Counsel Bua's inquest. The FBI investigated and members of the special task force assigned to the case, quote, questioned the conclusion of suicide, end quote. They also recommended additional investigation. This was apparently a big risk for the agents because putting forth their doubts was putting their careers at risk. It also calls into question the original investigative efforts and how conclusive they were. It also calls into question the FBI's motive. It seems odd the Bureau would look down on their agents expressing doubts about the cause of a suspicious death. As it turns out, the FBI misled the U.S. Congress during its investigation into Danny's death. The FBI said they weren't investigating the matter at all. Clearly, they were. The FBI also said that any files on Danny's death were missing. Yet, other FBI documents confirm that some files on Danny are being withheld from public release. So, clearly, they do have files. Maybe Danny got too close to the truth and threatened to expose people with the power to silence his voice for good. Maybe so, Andy. But there are still those who think the death of Danny Kessler was an actual factual suicide. Journalist and acquaintance of Danny's, uh, Ron Rosenblum, speculated in Vanity Fair that Danny might have committed suicide, but tried to make it look like a murder in retaliation for his research. Therefore, getting more people to investigate the octopus after his death. But, hey, there's nothing really uh, to this other than complete speculation as far as we're aware. Other people believe that Danny may have had more common, uh, I guess, motives for suicide. Eh, morbid, but, you know, depending on how you look at it, Danny wasn't an exceptionally successful person. Horse breeding didn't work out. He wasn't really distinguished as a journalist, and his stint running computer trade publications was pretty unremarkable. He did publish one novel, The Ice King, but he had to pay a vanity press to print it. Danny was in debt more often than he was not. The mortgage on Danny's home had a large balloon payment that was due not long after his death, and he wasn't so sure he could afford it. Danny had also expressed frustrations at not being able to find a buyer for his octopus story, which he'd been shopping around for 18 months. Obviously, this contradicts what Danny told some people, which is that he had a book deal, was writing a story for time, and was working with Jack Anderson. In actuality, none of these claims were factual. For example... The publisher, Little Brown, rejected Danny's manuscript for his octopus book a little more than a month before he died. Speaking after Danny's death, an editor at Little Brown, Roger Donald, said, quote, I'll tell you this. Anybody who killed him over that manuscript made a mistake. That was not a book that was going to be published. End Damn. quote. <laughs> Ice cold. Uh, okay, sure. That's probably a little harsh, uh, but you get the point. Donald met with Danny, uh, but found that Danny's proposal was, quote, very unprofessional. End quote. Then only a couple of weeks before his death, Danny called Donald and told him he'd fixed the proposal, which he then provided to Donald. After reviewing it, Donald didn't see any improvement. According to Donald, quote, My final remark to him was, I could write this outline. I could say there have been the following crimes and list them. Maybe he was on to something, but he sure as hell couldn't express it. End quote. Brutal. We mentioned earlier that special counsel Bua uh, looked into Danny's death as part of his Inslaw verdict review. 
During that investigation, the special counsel determined the suicide note found in Danny's hotel room matched Danny's handwriting. Hua's investigation also found that Danny's thumbprint was on the paper on which the note was written. Further, Danny's fingernails were the only fingerprints found anywhere in the hotel room, except for one unexplained print under an ashtray in the room. No matter the reason, Danny Casalero was a beloved person whose life ended far too soon. The cloud of suspicion that hangs over Danny's death may never clear up. Perhaps Danny took his own life that day in his hotel room, a man swirling in professional frustrations, personal debts, and medical issues. Or maybe Danny's investigative efforts actually led him to uncover a hugely influential and grossly corrupt cabal, which then turned its attention to Danny, forever putting a stop to his work. Funk Funkers, it's your turn to play investigative journalist. We presented the facts and the allegations here. Keep your wits about you and decide which story you're going to run with. But be careful. You're not just choosing your own adventure. You're choosing your own consequences. Maybe some night, after flirting with the waitstaff at your local pizza hut, you'll head home and draw a hot bath. Then, after making a hat out of a bubble bath bubbles, you'll realize you're not alone in your bathroom. Your gaze shifts to the bathroom doorway. You recognize it instantly, and you know what's about to happen. There, getting into the tub with you, is the whole enchilada. Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast will be right back after this brief message. Sure is chilly outside, Art. Andy, where's your jacket? Art, did you hear me? The wind chill is 30 below. Andy, I think you have hypothermia. You know, Art, with the horrific chilly weather outside, the only thing that'll warm me up is listening to Andy and Art Debunked, available only on patreon.com slash mrbunkerpod. Are you seriously shilling our Patreon right now? Oh, Art... Laughing at the antics of Andy and Art is all the warmth I need. And for just $5 a month, I get access to all the episodes of the show, behind-the-scenes updates, sneak peeks at episodes, and I can chat with Andy and Art on the Bunker Discord. Andy, we need to get you to a hospital. We need to get me to patreon.com slash mrbunkerpod. So shilly. Oh, God. I'm shilled to the bone. Hey, welcome back, Bunk Funkers. That was our research of the death of Danny Casalero and the octopus. Um, great album. <laughs> Danny Casalero and the octopus. <laughs> Terrific in album. In octopus's golden by the sea. Yeah, that song was actually about the octopus. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The Beatles were in on it. Oh, yeah. Big time. It's the only way those two fucking Muppets could have gotten any... Any fame? Am I right, British people? There were four people in the Beatles. What? There were four, four people in the Beatles. I didn't say a number. You said now those two people. Oh, I, whatever. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> I don't know what I said or what I didn't say. Um, Andy, I gotta say, uh, 
this is a dense topic and it's difficult. I don't know. It's a difficult one. This, this is, is why this is popular. <laughs> this is like, uh, I feel like, Ugh. I feel like, I feel like a hunter with this one. And there's like an animal in the forest somewhere. And I can tell that it's there, but there's so many trees that I can't exactly tell what's happening. So you end up shooting your best friend in the face. <laughs> yeah. I like Dick Cheney. I Dick Cheney it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know where you want to start with this one, huh? Um, oh man, that's a <laughs> fucking good question. Uh, cause there's like, there's like the big, the big issue I think is, is Danny's death. Like, was well, it, sus how, how suspicious do you find it? But then that leads you to like, well, if you find it suspicious, you kind of have to ask like, well, how credible was his research? You know, how good a job did he do with the octopus? Like, did he, was he on to something with this? Like we thinking. saw a bunch of different murders in the Marconi murders, right? Right. And we felt pretty fucking convinced by that, that people were doing something to off these people, claiming it's a suicide um, or sex related. I don't know. I don't, it, Danny's death is definitely sus, but I just don't, I don't get why they would do it that way. Like go in and, slash somebody's wrists you know yeah uh it just seems like super messy seems like there would be an insane struggle you'd get dna everywhere uh plus he was in some place that he didn't live right like There's nobody was traveling everywhere he could have just they could have just abducted him right and that would have been very easy if there, somebody was going to murder him um you know, you, you would think there would be some kind of sign of a struggle. Uh, DNA left somewhere. I don't know. I mean, obviously, the investigation kind of got washed. But, uh, I mean, I you know, there's a lot of, like, weird stuff where it's like, oh, he never had any papers. And then, like, it's like he did and he should have, but he doesn't. And, like, everybody's a fucking liar. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one point that um, some people make about this is that, you know, he kept. He's maybe not actually the best journalist, so he's not necessarily dealing with like quality sources. Uh, the, there was a family friend, a uh, a friend of the Casalero family, who was a former NSA agent, and Danny shared some of his research with this guy, and the guy was kind of like, uh this is not really all that credible. Like he didn't believe the octopus at all. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to say if you do believe the octopus, like, well, yeah, of course this guy works for the, worked for the NSA. Like, of course he's not going to say anything, but the guy was just kind of like, yeah, he, he had a lot of sources that weren't all that good. And the information that they presented him wasn't all that compelling. And it's just yeah. that he, he was, you know, he was desperate. I think in a lot of ways to like hit a big story or like find something interesting to to say like make a big journalistic impact and so i think it led him to deal with people who would make outrageous claims even if those claims had no basis in fact yeah it just kind of seems like you're right like if they if if because i think the most credible thing here is the bcci which it kind of seems like they actually have an actual factual track record of 
silencing people. Yeah. Bullying people, like doing bad things, like trying to, you know. Yeah. Um, and and uh, if they wanted him gone, like if he truly was that close to the truth, strap a bomb to his car. There, he's gone. Yeah. He's done. And all of his research is gone too. Like, right. just get rid Why? I mean, it might seem silly. Like I know, but it's it, we, the, with the Marconi murder stuff, like so much of it was like, they drove their car out to a strange place or they just killed them and left them there with the exhaust on to make it look like, like why? Like I saw, you got to break into that guy's apartment, have a f- fucking struggle with him, put him in a bathtub, take his clothes off or yeah. just assume that he's in the bath, I guess. Like, yeah, put him in the tub, slit his fucking wrists. Blood gets everywhere. Blood is going to be on you. It's so like, it's so much easier to just like put a bomb in someone's car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or just like, you know, yeah. Like, like push them off a bridge. And, and I gotta be honest with you. I can't shake this feeling that I can't fight this feeling anymore. There you go. Very that Andy is a hot little whore. Oh, I am. <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't, um, I can't escape the feeling that it almost feels like Danny had good cover to go to Martinsburg, West Virginia, because there's, there is an IRS facility there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly he potentially had a contact at the place. And I don't know. It's like, it's hard for me to tell if, if the if a suicide if he did commit suicide is it like a spur of the moment thing where he just like decides to do it i almost feel like this it feels more planned you know what i mean like he goes yeah. away he goes to a hotel room so none of his family has to find his body in that state and stuff like i can't i can't help but feel like there seems to be some aspect of planning on his part it's morbid to think about but you know and this this comes up every single time there are suicide cases that we cover. Yeah. Where people say they were never the type of person to commit suicide. They were never the type of person to do this. And it's like, yes, I understand that. But also people can get really down on their luck and can reach. It's horrible. You don't want to see it happen. And you want to believe that people in your life would not come to those means. But, uh, you know, when the the... The chips are stacked against you, as we factually know with Danny, with the mortgage, lack of success, can't find a buyer for the story, no money, feels like a failure. Um, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, people who it seems like they're on top of the world and they're the most fun-loving people you know can sometimes be the most depressed, the most darkest. That's how depression works. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm glad that you bring that up because that's like a big feature of this story in my mind. Well, I'm a psychologist. Well, I know, yeah, thank you. Our psychology chair. degree. Yeah, uh, and you never fail to point it out, so thank you for that. But in all the, a lot of his friends say that stuff like, oh, well, he, you know, it's like he wouldn't have done this, he wouldn't have done that, he wouldn't have, this isn't in keeping with his personality, and it's like, you don't, you interact with him in such a different way, like, you don't... You don't like you're not there with him when he's committing suicide. <laughs> like 
you're not going to the bar with him and he's like, I'm going to go commit suicide real quick in the bar. Yeah. In the bathroom. Like, right. You know, it's like, you're not, his well, mind, yeah. you know, like you said, you never know what's behind, you know, people who are oftentimes the most gregarious are a lot of times the people who have the most things to hide. And that's a total act. Most comedians are the most depressed people you will right. ever meet. Yeah. And they're, they're not happy. Happy. like, Oh, this is a fun loving. But it's like, I mean, you know, look at like Chris Farley. It's yeah. Like perfect example. Using humor to mask something else. Right. And, you know, Danny might have been that way too, that he, he was fun-loving, he was gregarious, and people loved him, I get that, but it's like, even those people can still commit suicide. Yeah, I mean, obviously the way he went was very um, gruesome. Uh, for It is a little weird that a guy who had a severe fear of uh, blood decided to uh, slit his own wrists mm -hmm. so deep that he cut one of his tendons. Right. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about wrist cutting. Uh, I don't know if that's a difficult task to achieve or if it's something that people include to, I don't know, kind of beef up the story to make it seem more like someone else did this. Yeah. I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, the people that seems to be like one thing that his family says is that he had a aversion to blood and needles, so they don't find that credible. You know, with the financial trouble, they also say like, "Oh, the we the family has money." Like the dad's dad's a doctor, so the family has money, and it's like, "Oh, well, if he needed money, he could have just asked for it and he would have gotten anything he wanted." And you know, it's kind of like, "Okay, but I not don't know everybody feels good about the Casalero family. Yeah, nobody, not everybody feels good about asking their family for money. Right. Like, especially if you're already feeling frustrated with your, like, career trajectory and you feel like you're kind of a fuck up anyway. Right. Maybe you don't want to go to your parents and be like, oh, by the way, I have this balloon payment on my mortgage. Right. I mean, your brother is this big time successful doctor. Dad's a big time successful doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, you know, they had that, that a sister who died unexpectedly at a young age and uh, yeah. that probably weighed pretty heavy on him. Um, but it's the same thing too. You know, his brother saying like, oh, well he would never, he, he could never commit suicide because he was so distressed about our sister. It's like, yeah, but why, why do you know that? You know, why could you, why would you feel like you're qualified to say, oh, well that would, that makes it impossible for him to have committed suicide. Right. I just kind of feel like that's, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say like insulting to people who like do commit suicide or attempt right, suicide right. where it's like, oh, well, you can always tell who's going to commit suicide. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's just something about that. Well, that I'm like, a doctor, so I would know that it's like, well, no, I know who commits suicide. It's only people who act like a certain way. They're the only ones that it's commit suicide. It's only people who uh, dress up like big sad clowns and then go, boo, boo, I'm so sad. <laughs> My life is a living joke. Oh, boo. <laughs> Those are the only people. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's just, it's a little bit arrogant to be like, oh no, he would never have. People like that don't commit suicide. Well, that's suicide. why he works for the Washington football team. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't think anything about them is arrogant. Maybe the owner. If he gets along with Dan Snyder really well. That's true. Um, also, <laughs> aren't they the team that fucked up Trent Richardson or somebody? And like he held out from playing for them for a long time. Or was that just a contract dispute? Um, I guess I don't remember now. Yeah, I don't remember either. Not Trent, Trent Richardson? Wasn't he that running back? 
Oh, who's the who's the it's the offensive lineman. Yeah, I knew who I knew the the guy. I don't know. You might have the name right. I might have Whatever, it wrong. Dude. I don't remember. Sports team doctors fucked up, man. They sometimes they fuck up. They like, don't who? do they don't do perfect. Golden State. No, no. Uh Tyrod Taylor got his fucking lung punctured by the uh, by the Chargers team doctor. Oh yeah, because of the needle. <laughs> oh Jesus. Yeah, uh, Tr- Trent Richardson was the running back from uh Yeah. Used to be on the Browns. Uh-huh. Trent Brown? Maybe it is Trent Brown. No, not Trent Brown, I don't think. Wait, maybe. No. Well, you know, Bunk Funkers. Yeah, Google it. <laughs> you can figure it out. You know, there are some other, I mean, just, but there are other things that pull you back in this case that are so tantalizing they're so juicy andy but the thing is there are so many grifters in this story yeah everybody is a grifter yeah i mean what do you make of mr prosciutto (laughs) michael prosciutto what do you make of that guy trent williams trent williams yes uh he had a cancer diagnosis and i think the team withheld that information from him or something right is that what it was uh I'm trying to get up to speed on this and remember it. Team frustration, the team's medical staff and his contract. Yeah, he. I guess he was frustrated with the medical staff. I don't know. We'll have to get you the whole enchilada on Trent, <laughs> Trent Williams later. What do you make of uh, Michael Prosciutto? What do you make of that guy? Is he a uh, grifter? You believe anything that's coming out of that guy's mouth? It's tough. What about I the stuff really in his don't childhood? Know. What about the stuff in his childhood? Was he lying about all of that? Or it's that legit. True? It's legit. That's legit. As he built as, a fucking laser at 16. As far as I know, that stuff is legit. That okay. he actually did that stuff. That he he legitimately is like a scientific kind of a whiz kid. Uh, he like he literally wired his town with a phone system, like an alternative to the phone company. (laughs) Uh, He built that argon laser. He like actually went to this thing at Stanford as a teen. He did work for a mining company. Some people actually think that he's not lying about saying that the thing that he had on his uh, property wasn't a drug lab, that it was actually like related to like some kind of system that you like purifying metal. Cause he was like mining platinum. Like that was kind of what he was involved. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. So it's hard. It's super hard to know for sure. He literally looks. He looks like a cured ham too. If you like, he look does. Him up. He does. He looks like a ham. Yeah, yeah he's very ham like. He's like. It looks like. It looks like a cured ham wearing a wig. Yeah, yeah. He's like a little ham looking guy. Um, but I don't. I don't know. It's like there's also there's also this thing of like as he was progressing through, you know, like getting closer to conviction, like. He seems like the type of person who will just say anything if it will get him off the hook for these drug charges. So it's like there might be some element of truth in there, but it's almost like he knows too much about the like conspiracy side of it. Yeah. You know, just like he knows what people think. And so he's just like throws that all together and inserts himself in those situations as like some link between all this stuff. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not like 
entirely convinced that a program from the 1980s could be faceted with a backdoor to allow for access to all that sensitive data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't know, but I have no clue. That's outside of my jurisdiction. Knowing what I know now about stuff, I don't think you had the kind of API endpoints that exist today in modern tech that you did back in the 1980s. I could be wrong. Uh, it just seems to me that maybe this is probably like standalone software that's designed to do one task. These are older computers, almost like DOS mainframe kind of looking computers. These are not, you know, there probably wasn't really even like a strong internet connection. I mean, internet as we understand it, there was probably Mm -hmm. network connections between these servers, these machines, but it wasn't anything like, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's not. I just have my doubts. It's not clear how you would give somebody in at this time a physical piece of software. They would install it on their computer, and then you would be able to monitor that computer remotely through that software. I mean, I don't uh, know. I mean, I it, think that's possible. Okay, I I I'm not up to speed on like SSH and stuff like that, like secure, like securing connections, but. That stuff has actually been a while, been around, blah, 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 been around for a while. I could see that being a possibility, remote, remoting into a server for sure. Well, let's say, let's say you, but I'm talking about like the backdoor access, like seeing, like, like this, they were talking about like they were going to outfit the software with that. And like, well, that's what I'm saying is like, if, if I took in like 1982 or whatever, yeah, I took a, I got a copy of promise and I took it home and installed it on my computer. If there was a back door built into it, how would anybody monitor that? If I don't, if I'm not connected to the internet or anything, it's like it's just plugged into the wall, into my electric outlet, and that's it. And I have no, I'm not connected to anything on a home network or anything else. Yeah. Like if I just have one single terminal running it. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think that it would be able to. I think you'd have to be on the government's network. Yeah. Um, or whatever they're installing this shit on. Uh, Listen, I'm not the strongest sysadmin. I'm not a sysadmin here. <laughs> you fucking network engineers and sysadmins listening to this are probably screaming at me. Sorry. I just studied that shit for a little while, okay? <laughs> I know basic Linux. Okay. Leave me alone. Sorry. I don't know how to set up a network, okay? Okay. God. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean I'm to. I'm trying my best. I didn't. I didn't know that this would happen. IT bunk funkers? I'm a database guy, okay? Okay. Fuck. Sorry. God. Okay. Fuck. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm sus on that. Uh. I mean, I do think Bill Bill Hamilton even said like, <laughs> no, you can't use Promise the way that they're describing it, and like that's the guy who would know. And there's no reason at that point for him to say like, no. That's not right. He should be like, yeah, they fucking did that because yeah, then it like them. it helps his case. So the fact that he doesn't support it means makes me feel like, yeah, you can do that with it. What do you think about that whole case, huh? You probably love that shit. Inslaw, everything. You think they got fucked over by the government, or you think uh, the government was in the right there? This is like one of those classic things where it's like I'm like, oh fuck, I'm so glad that I was not uh, the judge in this. I'm not. I wasn't Judge Basin because like. Did they steal it? Yeah, kind of, because they just stopped paying and kept it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, they can say, oh, breach of contract, but it's like, well, if it's breach of contract, like, why do you still get your thing, but they don't get their thing? Right. And so 
I mean, I don't know that it's so much that there was some conspiracy against Inslaw. I think it's just like the DOJ acted like a bunch of assholes. Like, I mean, I that's how it kind of feels to me is that they're like, they wrote a really onerous contract right. against a small company. And, you know, I don't know. The Inslaw seems like they had at least some legal representation, but who knows at the time of the contract if it was sufficient and like, they're literally dealing with like nothing but attorneys right. at the DOJ. So this contract probably like super favorable to the DOJ. And then. Yeah. Insla you can't do business with anybody else. Like, yeah, you're f basically fucked. Yeah. And then, and then Inslaw didn't help their case by modifying the software for commercial use, but not keeping clear like record of what, what was, modifications they, they took. <laughs> they make, they make the argument that, Oh, well we did these modifications with, private funding but yet then they can't show any of that so it's like okay well now you can screwed yourself because you had to give the doj your modified software so it's like they both kind of i mean insula wasn't super smart about it but at the same time i feel like the doj was it was being an ass about it um i feel like you'd 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 rule in favor of insula i kind of feel that way too yeah just because it's like fuck fuck the doj yeah <laughs> you, you want to go for the little guy which is uh different than how you usually feel yeah, but at the same time, like, I can understand why they won, why Insula won initially, and then it eventually got overturned on appeal. Right. Like, I could also see somebody saying, like, well, clearly Insula was in breach right. of the contract. The DOJ asked for what it was owed under the contract before they were, they themselves were in breach of the contract, and then they only did breach the contract because Insula was breaching the contract. But at the same time, it's like, well, this contract is pretty fucked up, like... It's like kind of the original sin is that first contract. And, yeah. and it's like the, through the modifications, it just, it's like they were already so far apart. Inslaw probably shouldn't have signed the contract. Just go with Enterprise, Inslaw. Don't worry about these governments. Yeah. Too much hassle. But then, you know, obviously Canada having promise was legit. Yeah. So it's like. Somebody was the fucking DO, around. The DOJ did sell it. Like there's no, I mean, I can't question that. So it's like they profited <laughs> off of. Insula's product and then stopped paying them for it. So it's like Insula didn't get compensated. I mean, it's 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 pretty fucked up, to be honest. It's pretty fucking busted. But, you know, does it mean that, is it like evidence of some huge conspiracy? Ah, yeah. I mean, I can see why this was kind of like a interesting scandal, but that nobody knows about it now. I mean, I never heard of this before. No, I didn't either. Like, this seems like a very niche scandal, but like I can see at the time where it was like, you know, because it is. It's like the government harassing a little software provider that's making something that is supposedly very useful. Now it's the other way around. The little guy harassing the government? The software providers are harassing oh. uh, everybody. Yeah, tech got its revenge. <laughs> oh, yes, we did. Insula did not die in vain. You bow to us now. Government. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think you're right. I probably would have I probably would have been like more on the Insula camp. What a fucking, I mean, everything is just all connected here, huh? Kinda. You know, it's like BCCI and BNL come in kind of out of nowhere. It's like there's no there's no ostensible connection between BCCI and BNL and like Iran-Contra, October Surprise, right. Inslaw. Right. Even though all of those things are like kind of connected just because of Reconoshudo. Yeah. Then the BCCI stuff is kind of like, oh, that's Danny. Danny believed that BCCI was using Promise for whatever. I mean, I guess if it could do something, they might have used it. But it's kind of like 
I don't know that there's like such a huge link between Inslaw and BCCI. Why are his fingernails missing? I don't know. Where did the bruise come from? That's that's stuff that remains unanswered. Why was he getting threatening phone calls? There were bloody rags that were found as well, right? Bloody towels and the housekeeping staff uh, like, were like, oh, that's fucking weird. And then they clean that shit up. So the housekeeping staff comes in. They find his body. The housekeeper that finds the body immediately gets like other people to come in the room. It's like, you know, oh, fuck. This is like, there's a big problem here. So then another housekeeper comes in. The other housekeeper notices that there are a couple of towels on the floor right. that have been used to like clean up blood, it looks like. Did that housekeeper see that somebody else on the housekeeping staff had done that? Or was that housekeeper seeing something that was there when the first housekeeper came in? It's, it's kind of confusing because it's like, were those towels there before the housekeeping staff even entered the room? Or did the first housekeeper try to like clean up the blood in like a panic. You know how you get like, you're yeah. like, Oh my God. Or like, you're trying to like get out of this situation. So nobody knows because then the professional cleaning crew discarded them. So that stuff's gone. And then there's like, I don't know, like the FBI, like keeping some files on him and like, there's still documents that are still withheld on him. It's like, was this guy actually onto something? <laughs> I don't know. It's, I, I don't know for sure what the deal with the FBI is because fuck, they were, this is so difficult. You know, the thing is like, he was in West Virginia. He lived in Virginia. Uh, like that's part of the notification thing is like the Martinsburg police reached out to like Virginia state authorities. They went to Danny's house. They knocked on the door. Of course, Danny lived alone. Nobody answered the door. So they left. And that's why the family didn't find out until after they called like Martinsburg <laughs> asking about this right or like they get a call from the funeral home or something so it's kind of a it sucks that it happened that way but it but seems you can like, see kind of why yeah there's like an ex an explanation but it's and like guess, apparently yeah. at some point the fbi got involved in it and i guess it was like initially they didn't want to investigate it but then they ended up investigating it and then they told congress that they didn't investigate it and didn't have any files on it but that was actually completely false that they did investigate it and they did have files on it. Which just adds to the mystery. Like, you know, why would the FBI do that? I don't know, Andy. I don't know. Is there, is there any other big points that we want to talk about with this case where we get to verdicts? Uh, maybe the FBI did it because they were worried that it like saying, Oh, he was murdered. It would jeopardize their own software. Fomus that was based on Promise or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they all just stole Promise. They didn't yeah. have to pay for it. They just fucking ripped it off. Um, it's all right. I mean, it, it would have been terminated in a couple of years anyway. Hey, how about that? Uh, how about that editor for Little Brown? Huh? <laughs> what Jesus a fucking Christ! What a fucking oh man! I'm never gonna write a book. I can't deal with that. Holy shit! And he's talking about somebody who died. Yeah. Like, imagine if you're alive, how much of a prick this guy probably is. Yeah, your book fucking sucked. I used it as toilet paper, and it was even bad at that. Anyway, here's the shit-covered pages back, you fuck. <laughs> that book was a fucking piece of garbage. <laughs> that guy, he, 
Hey, he should be fucking glad he's dead because then his family never have to read that piece of shit book. What a fucking disaster. <laughs> I wouldn't wipe my ass with that book. I couldn't wipe my ass with that book. <laughs> I need a quality piece of paper to wipe my ass. I only wipe my ass with uh, copies of A Tale of Two Cities. I call it A Tale of Two Shitties <laughs> because I can get two shits out of it. <laughs> Oh boy, um, that guy's brutal. Yeah, there's... he's absolutely brutal. But I mean, at the same time, it's like okay, I kind of get his point. Like he Danny didn't have to be a such, good writer. Doesn't have to be such an ass about it. But I it's know. like you know, a lot of people, you know, like the NSA guy, kind of said like, you know, the fact that like Danny didn't didn't know like why. Yeah certain things were happening. He just believed that they did happen. It's kind of like, okay, he doesn't even really believe his own research necessarily. It's just a good story to say that that's what happened. So it's like, yeah, I can kind of see like, there's a lot of like tenuous connections or <laughs> like jumping to conclusions. Ugh. Andy, I guess we got to verticize here. On, yeah, we got to uh, do it. Whether Danny Kessler <sighs> was murdered or not, and whether there is an octopus <laughs> yeah, conspiracy. This has got to be a two, two-parter verdict. Um, two years, two verdicts. Um, all right, so I'm going to start off with... I'm going to start off with Danny's, Danny's death. Uh, and do I think that he was uh, committed suicide or do I think that he was the victim of a murder? Um so I'm just going to rate this plausibility. I'm going to take the official stance, which is that it was a suicide, and rate the plausibility of that art. All right. Okay. Um, which will inform how I feel about the other side of the coin. Um, I think uh, the official line here uh, that it was a suicide, I'm, I'm going to say very plausible. Wow. Very plausible. I... I really feel like that's probably what happened. Uh, there's enough, there's enough question marks. I think that you can't say case confirmed, but I kind of, I mean, the DNA is all over. The handwriting is his. I mean, the fact that he, you know, the the multiple sclerosis, like it wasn't yeah, bad, oh, but it's like that, yeah. he knew what was going to happen in the future. And some people just don't want to live like that. To be honest, like True. you know, sure. multiple MS is really like a wild wild disease very wild card yeah so i mean i can i can see why you would feel that way um so i'm going very plausible um about the octopus yeah i mean i think the first verdict informs the second uh a little bit um i'm gonna say plausible minus minus wow uh i don't really think that the octopus is a thing but Man, this kind of made me realize, like, god damn, the government was is super fucking corrupt. Look at all these scandals. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> it's like Reagan literally went on TV and was like, yeah, I'm per personally, like, fully responsible for Iran-Contra, and nothing happened. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I served eight years as president. Yeah, like, I, I mean, got reelected in a landslide. Yeah, he, like, won both times handily. Like, I know that was later in his presidency, but man, oh man, it's like, 
That administration was pretty fucking corrupt. <laughs> Scandal prone. Oh yeah. Um so like I'm not I'm not saying there's no government corruption. Uh, right. I'm just saying, like, I don't know that there's like eight. you don't know if there's a cabal of people who operate outside the laws of all governments working together. Right. Yeah. Eight. What is it? Eight. There's eight different seats. It's like if anything, the 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 thread between all these things is like the uh, is the Reagan administration <laughs> more than the some like shadowy figures. Like, yeah. I think the actual conspiracy is much more mundane than uh, than the octopus. Yeah. So I'm just not, I'm not super, I'm not super convinced by the octopus. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Great verdicts from Andy. Decision time, Arthur. Solid stuff here. What did, did Danny Castellaro commit suicide? I, I agree with you. Plausible plus plus. There's some still some very susta. And I know I can hear some of the bunk funkers. I can hear the haters, especially being like, you guys are fucking shills. You think that guy committed suicide, blah, blah, yeah. blah. How do you tell me how you cut your wrist that much? I don't know. I can't explain that. Uh, I can't explain the shoelace. I don't know if maybe he tried different things and he just decided to do it that way. He he did have painkillers in his system, so maybe he had a bunch of fucking painkillers. Maybe he couldn't tell how, how bad it was. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously that like he wasn't incapacitated, but right. did the painkillers mute the pain enough that you want to tell me how somebody infiltrated his fucking uh, hotel room, didn't leave any DNA behind, and forced him to do all that stuff? Yeah, if there wasn't anything in his system, <laughs> yeah, forced him to write a fucking suicide note that's in his handwriting, right. has his DNA all over it, uh, and then yeah, didn't leave blood or footprints or anything anywhere else, right? Uh, like I get, I get that there was some fuck ups. I get that they strained the data or the strain, the, didn't strain the blood. They embalmed the fucking body and they couldn't really do a true hundred percent autopsy. And, and there's it throughout w- the towels. I will say they did. The autopsies are legit. Yes. And they did the autopsies. Right. It's, it's just, just the embalming it more, made it difficult. It was more difficult, but at the same time, a lot of people point to that, but I believe the professional like consensus is that the embalming doesn't actually prohibit you from doing a proper okay. autopsy. It just makes okay. it, you know, you just have to work harder at it, but it's still possible. And, and so they had to struggle a little bit more. Right. That's okay. All right. Lesson learned there, but yeah, plausible plus plus on that. I think okay. if anybody did murder him, it was BCCI. Uh, <laughs> right. He's, he's writing something about that. I don't, I don't know. I can't really tell who is buying this story. It doesn't seem like somebody would buy this story. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem doesn't seem like he was such a credible threat. It to was BCCI. very yeah. It was a little far fetched. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is not. I don't think time was buying this. I really don't. Plus, at this point, BCCI was like on its last legs. Right. Like it had already been like scandal ridden and was under investigation by a whole bunch of authorities. And unfortunately, Danny does have a history of writing fiction. Mm -hmm. He wrote the ice King. And then, you know, this probably could have been a fun spy novel. He's trying to write or a conspiracy novel. You know, he goes around, collects some, like, I know people want to pretend that that never happens, but there's a fuck ton of grifters in this industry. You're fucking listening to two of the best. <laughs> no, there are. There's a ton of grifters. Like, oh yeah, 
you can literally just say anything happened to you and then write a book about UFOs allegedly abducting you. And it's like, people will buy it. And nobody, nobody, stuff like that, nobody's able to refute it because right. you're having a personal experience at a time when there's no other witness. It's easy to make anything up. We're not hating on Bob Lazar, but we did a lot of research into Bob Lazar. And I mean, you know, we weren't as soup, we weren't very plausible in his story, but it's like, okay, he's not some modico, he's not some fucking mogul, but he got to go on the Joe Rogan experience, one of the biggest <laughs> podcasts in the world. He got a Netflix movie debuted about him yeah like he gets to write books well, he he got to co-star well, yeah in a netflix movie about jeremy kenyon lockyer Cor right. corbell right. right about a movie about jeremy kenyon lockyer corbell and uh uh i guess about his own <laughs> uh investigation into bob lazar sure and his own unlikely partnership with uh with um george uh help me George's last name. George uh Nap nah. George Nap. George Nap. Yeah. Uh yeah, you're right. And I mean, you know, there's do you want to sit here and tell me nobody made any money off that? I'm not gonna believe you. I'm no, sorry. No. Yeah. Somebody people were making money off of that. Yeah, for sure. Uh so I'm not saying I'm not calling Danny a grifter. I'm just saying that, you know, he could have been trying to collect different resources use his journalist background to kind of be like, look, oh, this crazy story. I'm going to publish it into a book. If anything, I kind of feel like he got maybe taken advantage of by grifters. Yes. And he was too trusting. Yes. A lot of grifters like Michael Prosciutto. <laughs> uh, and different. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his real name. He's Michael Prosciutto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, I agree with you. There's a bunch of fucking grifters in this. People just claim shit all day long. Oh yeah, I was a former CIA. It's like, okay, how are you going to prove that? Well, yeah. I can't. You just got to trust me. You got to believe me, baby. I'm going to tell you all these secrets. It's like, okay. My name's Teddy Salad. I used to be CIA. Teddy Salad. <laughs> I stole that from Monty Python. Uh, I do think that, I agree with you. I, I do think that conspiracies, in, oh, I mean the octopus, mm, plausible minus and a half. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, there's obviously worldwide corruption lots of different world powers not even just the u.s no there's, yeah there's so much corruption i don't i don't i don't have i don't hold <laughs> politicians in a very high esteem and i honestly think that politics is probably more akin to veep than it is house of cards honestly i think that <laughs> that politics probably closely more closely resembles like how people act on veep which is self-centered type a right people just going around in their own self-interest. Yeah. Trying to do things that they want to do. And this is, this corruption is very evident of that where it's like, Oh, uh, this, this guy is uh fucking like gassing entire people in his country and doing lots of things. Well, well you know, still support him because he hates our, he's a, not a friend of our enemies. It's like, nobody gives a shit about Saddam's uh, genocide against right. the Kurds. But as soon as he fucking goes into Kuwait, oh, that's it, motherfucker. The whole world is against you. Like, yeah. It's like and then the 20 US, years later, we kick him out and fucking yeah. like, publicly execute the guy. The U.S. didn't organize a coalition to save the Kurds. They organized a coalition to, like, get Saddam out of Kuwait. Right. <laughs> and then just let him go back to Iraq where he could fuck kill, kill Kurds all he wanted again. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's self-interest is the name of the game here, baby. And uh, that's evident in the DOJ also 
stealing fucking software and just yeah. being like, hey, Canada, you want a little taste of this shit? And Canada's like, <laughs> you want to hit oh, it? Wee wee. You want to you hit it this case management you software? You want to hit it this case And they're like, oh, oh sure. Yeah, eh? That sounds like good there, huh? That sounds great. Yeah. Hey, why don't you come up here to Thunder Bay, Ontario, eh? Get yourself a uh, piece of our case management software. Promise. It stands for poutine really mighty. Uh, oh, fuck. Poutine really. Uh, we. <laughs> poutine really. <laughs> uh, what's up? Oh, word. Fuck. Poutine. It's uh, it's it's like a list. It's poutine. Uh, really old milk. <laughs> <laughs> and indigestible <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's a it's a classic uh, Canadian meal, okay? Yeah, here in Thunder Bay. Uh Thunder Bay, Ontario, eh? Go watch our favorite show, Letter Keeney. Um But that's what I think. I think that, you know, is there a cabal of the uh, called the octopus with eight different seats? I don't know, man. You, this is getting into like New World Order shit. And it's kind of like, maybe. But honestly, I think there's just world powers that are so insanely powerful and so self-interested. They'll just do whatever they want and it doesn't matter. Nobody really, nobody got in trouble. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really the biggest thing is that there's all this stuff and yeah. people know it's happening and then nothing, nobody really, you know. Well, nothing really comes of it. Uh, Bung Funkers, let us know what, those are our verdicts. Let us know what you think about the death of Danny Casolaro and the octopus conspiracy. Use the hashtag. Um, Octopromise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Octopromise. <laughs> Use the hashtag Octopromise. Let us know what you think about this topic. Email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at mrbunkerpod. Find our YouTube, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash mrbunkerpod. And if you love this show and you want to support it going forward, you can at patreon.com slash mrbunkerpod. Five bucks a month will get you access to the Bunker Discord, sneak peeks on uh, main feed episodes, and access to our entire back catalog of our Patreon-only show, Andy and Our Debunked, where we cover serial killer stories and other topics that wouldn't... that Other topics that are, you know what? Too fucking hot for the main feed. <laughs> too hot to handle. Um, you know, Andy, any any last words? Hey, uh, Bunk Funkers, it feels fucking good to be winners, baby. <laughs> yeah. uh, this winning streak is never going to end. Never, ever. Uh, so next time you see us, whenever the fuck that is, <laughs> yeah. uh, get ready because we're about to be uh, slam dunking fucking winning in your ear holes. Every yeah, this might be the last episode ever. We don't yeah, fucking know. Yeah, we don't know. fucking know. We are winners. And whatever we do is the right choice. Um, but thanks for two great fucking years. Y'all yeah. are fucking awesome for listening <laughs> Um, it gets my dick so hard thinking about everybody listening to me fucking be a winner and all this stuff. So, you know, fucking keep on trucking, dudes. <laughs> well, for not the titular Mr. Bunker ever again. Fucking dick. Fucking 
Loser, you lost, dude. Yeah. Mr. Bunker, you fired. You fired. Uh, for my co-host, uh, but for my co-host, Andy, for for my, how do I fucking end the show? For my, uh, I don't know. Versal. Oh. Versal. Oh. Co-host, Andy Hart. I'm already saying that was the whole enchilada. Hey, go, go Hartford. Pucky the whale, eh? Go Hartford. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.